and welcome to today's meeting of the Public Accounts Committee, which is now in public session. Um, members, mobile phones must be set to airplane mode or turned off. It is not sufficient to put mobiles on silent as they continue to interfere with the Assembly recording. This session is being recorded in video and audio and can be accessed via live online streaming and on the Assembly website or Democracy Live. We are now in public session and item, agenda item one is apologies. Have we any apologies for today's meeting? No. The House. Okay. Agenda item two then. Minutes of the 12th of November 2020, which in your packs, pages 6 to 10. Are members content I should sign them? Being accurate? Great. Okay. Okay. Okay, agenda item three then, members, is declarations of interests. Uh, at each meeting, members are required to register relevant financial or other interests uh, in register of members' interests. Does any member have any interest they wish to declare this afternoon? A member of Clay, Board of Governors. Okay, I declare an interest as a governor at the Girls' Model and Edinburgh Primary School in Belfast. Mr. Beggs. I interest as a governor of Rodenfield School. And uh, a member of our Rising Sure Start. Any others? Yeah. Okay, Mr. Muir. Yeah, Board of Governors of RA Community College in Hollywood. Okay, Mr. McHugh. Uh, Chair of Peace School in Jericho. Uh, Peace School to a recent Castleberry. Okay, agenda item four then matters arising. Have we any matters arising from those minutes? Okay. Agenda item five is correspondence, pages 14 to 83. Members are referred to correspondence dated the 11th of November from Renewables Northern Ireland uh, in your pack at pages 14 to 51, which PAC have copied, been copied into. The correspondence to the Minister for the Economy and the Northern Ireland Audit Office are about the Northern Ireland Audit Office report on generating electricity from renewable energy. Uh, essentially, renewables. And I disagree with the recommendation six of the Northern Ireland Audit Office report on the basis that cost assumptions underpinning their recommendation are unsound. Renewables NI has made the point that a complaint to Northern, uh, a complaint to Northern Ireland Audit Office on the basis and requested that the Audit Office seeks to verify the figures which they have presented. Are any members any comments wish to make? No. Mr. Beggs. Just look forward to hearing feedback from the Audit Office. Yeah. Um, well, the letters come to us, and we have a detailed response already issued back, and we'll copy that into the committee, that you can see the uh, the counter arguments okay. and how the figures were calculated. Members, you content that we write back to Mr. New and inform him that the PAC has written to the Northern Ireland Audit Office about the issues he's raised. Agreed. Agreed. Members are referred to the correspondence dated the 11th of November 2020 from Ms. Sue Gray. Uh, the accounting officer and permanent secretary of the department of finance at pages 52 to 81 of your pack in response to the committee's letter of the 2nd of october 2020 requesting further information uh, from evidence session of the 24th of september 2020 members this is a sizable piece of correspondence uh, and was noted at last week's meeting by the committee but not considered miss gray has confirmed that neither landweb nor ni direct con contracts were included in her first day brief which was an issue if you remember i raised which i think is 
uh, is, is poor, not from her perspective, but for those who are preparing a first day brief, the two contracts which total an overspend of somewhere in the region between 110 and 120 million pounds were not included in the permanent secretary's first day brief. I think that's poor, uh, and I'm being kind, I think, when I say it's poor. Uh, the letter includes commercially sensitive information on the actual uh, and forecast costs of NI Direct and the advisory and development costs and managed service costs. If members wish to discuss NXD, the department has asked that these should be discussed in closed session as it refers to the BT tender. There is also information on the value for money of Landweb and details of the innovation fund to cover the cost of enhancements to the system. Included as well is an analysis of the value for money of the project delivery. Um, would the controller order general anything you wanted to um, highlight to the committee at this point? Uh, you know, there's quite a lot of detail in, in the response and um, in general it will be helpful for the committee in assembling your report. Um, there is a couple of little things. There's a reference to the, the IT contract dealing with some COVID-related issues. Uh, so that, that could mean uh, further expenditure over and above the 110 million that you already know about. So uh, it would be for maybe the committee to keep track of that in, yeah. in due course. Um, there's also reference to um, CPD involvement uh, very recently in, uh, in just on, on the contractual side of things. Uh, I suppose the big point is um, it, it would have been better if CPD were in the room uh, at the much earlier stage of, uh, of these contractual deliberations. Um, there's reference on land web to the, the cost overrun uh, would be lower if, uh, if inflation was taken into account. So that's, that's just a point they've registered. Um, there's a big point on just the commercial and confidence. Uh, not suggest at all that you know the committee would needs to use any of these detailed figures in, in its report. Uh, but I suppose the, the question is, why, why, why commercial and confidence for some of this material? And I can understand that uh, when a contract is live, of course you'll be confident, but once a contract is who says it's commercial and confidence and what's the rationale for it? So it's worth asking that, uh, because sometimes firms will actually say treat this in confidence, but the interest of the firm and the interest of the public and the public sector are quite different. So sometimes, and I don't know the answer in this, is that that assumption uh, should be challenged. Yeah, okay. Uh, I think um, from, from my, my perspective, I think we should write back and seek clarity around some of these issues. I, I agree with the point you're making. If a contract, for example, was signed in 2010, why on earth that contract signed in 2010 would in any way be commercially sensitive now? Uh, and the other point I would make is I, I think it, uh, it's been consistently made around a number of departments and um, individuals who've been in front of us here uh, about a culture. And I think the issue there that, that, that prevails is uh, I don't think that culture necessarily is a good culture if, in a first day brief, it is not deemed to be important enough to tell a permanent secretary there's been two contracts, there's been an overspend of £110 million. Pounds. Simply not acceptable. And therefore, I think uh, we will give consideration to these things um, as, as work continues. But at this stage, 
I would ask the committee if they are content to write back to the Department for clarity on the commercially sensitive information uh, within the letter uh, for the publishing uh, of our report. Are members, any comments they want to make? Are they content with that? Content. Okay. Okay, members, I refer to correspondence of the Economy Committee from the Department of the Economy dated the 4th of November 2020, pages 82 to 83 of your pack. The Economy Committee has forwarded us a copy of the written update uh, on the uh, due diligence FTC on the Ulster University uh, and how it was being carried out. Are members content to note and forward to the Northern Ireland Audit Office? Agreed. Okay, thank you. And members, I refer to correspondence from Belfast City Council dated the 18th of November 2020 in your pack. In your table pack, uh, Mr. Thatcher confirms that Casement Park application was called in by the Department of Infrastructure, um, and that they are processing, progressing with the application, as the determining authority following the decision to approve was made by the Minister for Infrastructure. Uh, as confirmed by the DFC Accounting Officer at last week's evidence session, Mr. Thatcher clarifies in his letter that DFC are required to serve a notice of opinion. Uh, on Belfast City Council prior to them issuing the decision. This has not yet occurred, but this, his understanding is that the DFE, sorry, DFI intend to do this shortly. I suggest that we check answer to this issue. Are you content? Content? Mr Hildage? Sure, I think that's, that's somewhat disappointing. I think we had asked the accounting officer last week in relation to the input, particularly of the Belfast bag group in Belfast. And had their expertise been sought over uh, safety matters mm. and whatnot? So it's uh, just were we misled slightly last week or misled? Yeah, I think I think there there is a danger that conclusion could be read we were misled. So we need to get clarity. So I think um, I'd be happy if the committee would support us seeking that clarity. Our members agreed. agreed. Okay. okay. Thank you. Members, uh, for agenda item six and seven, we'd be taking evidence remotely, and I would also adjourn the meeting for a short time after that, after Mr. Boyd's evidence session, before going on to agenda, agenda item seven. We will begin an open session to hear evidence from Mr. Boyd on special education needs. Members, I would remind you that uh, we will then move into closed session to hear any more sensitive issues if we need to do so. Are members agreed? Agreed. Okay, then moving on then to agenda item six is a briefing from Mr. Gavin Boyd, the retired and now former chief executive of the Education Authority on the Northern Ireland Audit Office report into special educational needs, which can be found at pages 85 to 125. At this stage, I would invite um, Mr. Boyd uh, to join the meeting. Good afternoon, Gavin. Good afternoon, Chair. Good afternoon, members. Okay. Uh, Gavin, just so you were also in attendance is Mr. Cairn Donnelly, the Comptroller and Auditor General of the Northern Ireland Audit Office, Mr. Stuart Stevenson, Treasury Officer of Accounts and uh, at the Department of Finance, and Mr. Kyle Bingham, Assembly Support uh, Officer, will join the meeting um, as well. Does he say remotely? But I think he is here. Um, um, so, um, Mr. Boyd's with us. Mr. Stevenson, are you with us? Good afternoon, Chair. Good afternoon. And you can both see and hear us. Okay. Members, um, the next two sessions have been requested to hear further evidence regarding the um, Northern Ireland Audit Office two reports into special educational needs. And we will first hear from Mr. Boyd, as I said, the former and now retired Chief Executive, who was in post from the 
April 2015 to March 2019. Um, members, your packs, uh, including for the following session, answered evidence on the 8th of July 2020, pages 85 to 105, restricted issues paper on send dated the 16th of November 2020 at pages 106 to 108 of your pack. Um, the biography of Mr. Boyd is 109 of your pack. Uh, restricted correspondence dated the 21st of October 2020 from the Education Committee regarding SEN, pages 110 to 113 of your pack. Restricted correspondence dated the 11th of November 2020 from Sharon O'Connor, Chair of the Education Authority, in regards to attendance at this week's session, 114 of your pack. Restricted correspondence dated the 11th of November 2020 from Sarah Long, Chief Executive of the EA, providing requested follow-up evidence session uh, on from the 15th of October pages 115 to 118 of your pack, and restricted papers suggested uh, areas of questioning, 119 to 125 of your pack. Um, and then the Northern Ireland Auditor Office reports are at the back of your pack. Uh, and members, uh, so can I just say that, um, I, as I said earlier, Mr Boyd will is here in front of us and Thank, we thank him for giving us time, but he is here to answer questions around the issues when he was responsible. He is not here to answer questions on those issues which are live and have um, unfolded subsequent to his departure from Academy Street. So I just want to make that very, very clear to members. Um, okay. It is disappointing for us as a committee to find that the unacceptable issues that raised by the Northern Ireland Audit Office in the 2017 SEN report still persists today in 2020 as we near the end of this calendar year. And the 10 recommendations made in 2017 report have not been fully implemented. It is evident that performance has deteriorated since 2017 and that many children have been failed. Members, I would like to welcome Mr Gavin Boyd to the meeting and after Mr Boyd's opening statement, if he wishes to make one, I will open uh, the committee up to questioning. And each member in turn will be called to question. Mr. Mr. Boyd, good afternoon. As I've said, do you wish to make a, an opening statement, Gavin? Yes, please, if I might, Chair. Okay. But first of all, can I say I welcome the opportunity to assist the committee in whatever way I can. You will be aware that it is the responsibility of the accounting officer to account for an organisation both present and past. Indeed, in my 19 years as an accounting officer, I have on a number of occasions accounted for issues which arose in an organisation before I was in post. It's therefore relatively rare for a retired accounting officer to be asked to give evidence except in a number of clearly defined circumstances. And I thank you, Chair, for your clarification at the start. I have no data which is not in the possession of the current accounting officer. And since I retired on the 31st of March uh, uh, 2019, I can't comment on anything after my retirement from EA, and that includes the 2020 NIAO report. However, having read the transcript of the evidence uh, given on the 15th of October, it seems to me that I can be of assistance to the committee in giving my views on the position of the ELBs shortly before the transition into the Education Authority, transitional arrangements for EA, the governance arrangements within EA, and the response to the 2017 NIAO report. I'll be happy to give the committee an insight into the enormous challenges of managing the transition from five ELBs into a new organization. 
the challenges of starting to, to develop a new organizational culture where there had previously been at least five, the challenges of introducing technological solutions where previously there had been few, the challenges of data and using it to inform management decisions where that had not been very often the case, the challenge of developing and supporting a new governance regime. This was the biggest reorganization of public services in a generation. And, and because of the political sensitivities, the transitional team um, um, was precluded from engaging with the legacy organizations until the legislation received royal assent three and a half months before implementation. Chair, there's one final point which I would like to make. When I talk about needs, in my mind, I'm not talking about systems or processes, but about I'm thinking about individual children, their needs, and how we support them and their families. I know from direct personal experience, frustration that a parent feels when they believe that the bureaucracy is not responding to the needs of their child. And I also know at first hand the enormous gratitude that a parent feels when their child is supported by teachers to realize their potential. Chair, I'll be very happy to take your questions. Okay, thank you very much um, for your opening statement. Um, can I ask you very candidly, um, Mr. Boyd, were you aware of problems around special educational needs when you were Chief Executive of the Education Authority? There were, um, I can contextualize this, Chair, and say, there were significant issues in drawing together the practices, the data uh, from the five different education and library boards. So at a very early stage, and I, I should also make one other contextual point. The plan to transition from the education library boards to the education authority meant that actually the existing management practices, the existing staff, the existing processes continued for the first year of the education authority. So actually, we didn't start to put in place the new management until the 1st of April 2016. Um, we had sight of uh, transitional proposals from the existing staff, the, the boards, at the end of 2015, and those transitional process, uh, proposals highlighted the real challenges there would be in bringing a unified, consistent approach to the delivery of special educational needs uh, across uh, uh, Northern Ireland uh, going forward. But Chair, simple answer to your question is, we knew that there were, uh, and I had correspondence from individual parents, I had feedback from parents, we knew that there were challenges in this area. Okay, so given that the, I have heard um, as a member of the Education Committee that perhaps the five different um, boards that became one under the authority were dealing with this in, in somewhat differently, can I ask you then, as the, as the first uh, chair of the Education Authority, what actions did you take to address these issues? Well, I think, Chair, the, the uh, 2017 Audit Office report highlights the fact that there were difficulties going back over many years. 
Uh, in fact, if I remember correctly, the 27, 2017 report uh, identifies the fact that uh, at the at around about 2008, 2009, there were instances, for example, of children waiting up to two years uh, to get a statutory uh, assessment and a further period after that to get a statement. So there were, historically, there were very significant issues. One of the challenges that we faced was, and one of the, the challenges the, the board uh, was very aware of, was the different processes, the different approaches uh, uh, that were taken in the five ELB areas, and the fact that children presenting with exactly the same needs could be getting different support depending on where they lived. So there was a process set in place to try and get to a consistent regional approach to supporting those children. And that started to go in place from the tail end of 2015. And when you say started from the, the tail end of 2015, by the time of your departure, how far had that got down the track? Well, um, what I would say, Chair, is that the consistently the reports coming to the Children and Young People's Services Committee which was the, the, the board committee that oversaw this delivery, consistently those reports said that good progress had been made uh, in uh, bringing consistency. There were two major takeaways from the 2017 audit office report, as far as I was concerned. And the two major takeaways were, uh, uh, it was that the department and the education authority were not capable of demonstrating value for money in the very significant expenditure. And the second takeaway was uh, delays in processing statements. If I can deal with the first issue first. Um, the, so the, the, I have to tell you right at the outset, I have difficulty when talking about value for money in the context of supporting children with special educational needs. Okay, the, I, I understand my responsibilities as an accounting officer, and indeed your responsibilities as a public accounts committee dealing with value for money issues. But we do have to remember that we're dealing in some instances with the most vulnerable of children with the most profound difficulties, right? And secondly, we've got a legislative context which says that we will do all that we possibly can for these children. Uh, and then there's a financial context which doesn't back that up. The second, and, and maybe we'll get the chance to return to that, Chair, because I feel very strongly about it. The second issue was identified in the audit office report uh, for me. The second takeaway for me was the delay uh, in processing statements. As far as I'm concerned, every day that is delayed in intervening to support children is a tragedy. It should not be allowed to happen. However, the uh, the the, the reporting from inside the Education Authority was exactly the same as it had been inside the ELBs, which was that the undue delays in preparing statements for children were almost exclusively uh, uh, caused by delays in getting information from the health service. Okay. I mean, I, I agree with you about the, the issue of children having to wait two years uh, to be I mean, the, the stress that that places on the family, uh, the young person in particular, but the mother and father, but also, as you will know, uh, the school principal, teachers, 
uh, classroom assistants and the other young people in, in the child's class, huge, huge, and uh, having a huge negative effect on all of the people I've mentioned. When your predecessor was in front of our committee, and I think I heard you say it there earlier at the start of the meeting, when she was in front of the committee on the 15th of October, I think you've read that transcript, is that right? Yeah. Yeah. One of the points I put to Ms. Long was that I f felt there was a deep-rooted systemic culture, um, and she, within the organisation, and she, she agreed. Can I ask you, is it fair to say, when you were there, did you feel that was the case? Um, I, I, I was surprised to hear those comments, and no, I don't believe it's the case. Now, let me explain. In my entire time in working in education, I never came across a single individual who didn't want to do their best for children, right? So there was never any instance that I came across uh, where people weren't motivated to do their, their best. However, my clear view is uh, that the systems and processes were simply not fit for purpose and hadn't been fit for purpose for some time. They simply, uh, I mean, my observation, and I did spend a little bit of time working in two of the education library boards. My observation was that um, we simply hadn't adopted technology to improve uh, processes. We Too much time was spent chasing pieces of paper. Too much time was spent reacting to issues rather than proactively dealing with them. Uh, and therefore, I agree, uh, and the evidence is there, that there were long-standing systemic problems, but I can't actually agree that there was a cultural approach that said, we're not going to try and do our very best for children. Okay. <clears throat> I think, I think the, um, it, it is a stark admission uh, that uh, the, sy the systems and processes, and I want to ensure I quote you correctly, the systems and processes were not fit for purpose is, is quite a quite a, um, a statement to make. But thank you very much for your, your questions. I, I bring in Mr Harvey at this point. Thank you very much, Chair. <coughs> thank you. Mr Boyd. Mr Boyd, there appears to have been little progress made from 2017 to 2019, subsequent to the 2017 report. What was the reason for this? Well, um, all I can tell you, uh, Mr Harvey, is that First of all, I welcomed the 2017 report. I thought it was a really good piece of work. Um, from my position, it gave us the starting point. So I, I, I made reference to the fact that we didn't start to implement management changes uh, until 16. The data for the 2017 report was gathered in 2016. So it really set out very clearly and independently where we were sitting at that time. Now, the response uh, uh, from my perspective the 2017 report was a very good one, a very thorough one. Know that the department took the lead, uh, as was appropriate, and uh, created a program board to oversee the responses to the 10 recommendations, the 10 recommendations out of the audit office report. From my perspective, the big recommendations were Number one, that EA, the really big recommendations for EA were that EA put in place a finance system that could accurately record expenditure uh, on special educational needs. That was implemented, if memory serves me correct, the new finance system was implemented at the end of 2016. 
uh, and data, uh, the data that was available around finance, the cost of special education needs significantly improved uh, after that point. The second big recommendation that I was concerned about uh, was that the authority would put in place uh, proper uh, uh, IT systems to gather the data uh, on uh, statements. Now, that, uh, that system, uh, I think, was probably put in place uh, towards the end of 2018. Uh, we would have liked to have seen it in place more quickly, but the truth of the matter is that the authority was upgrading uh, uh, IT support systems all over the place. We, I, I made reference to the new finance system that was put in place. That was a huge system, but at the same time, there were other efforts going on, like, for example, online application for transport, online application for school places. So there was an enormous amount of activity going on right across uh, the uh, education authority to upgrade the technical responses. Uh, so as far as I was concerned, and the best data that was available to me by the time I left was we had implemented IT solution for finance and we had put in place the IT systems that would give better data for monitoring statements. Mr. Boyle, in previous evidence, we have been told that significant expertise was lost during the amalgamation of the ALBs. Would you agree that this had a bearing on the deterioration of provision across SEM? Well, um, to take the second part of your question first, Mr. Harvey, I have no evidence to suggest that there was a deterioration in provision of SEM over that period of time. Uh, now, let me explain. The Audit Office report, the 2017 report, points to uh, instances where 10 years previously there had been real concerns about SEN provision. Now, let me be clear, I'm not defending the provision that was made. Uh, I think it could have been significantly better, but I'm not. I, I, there was no evidence of deterioration. Uh, indeed, the fact that the department had started a review of SEN 10 years previously shows that there was a level of dissatisfaction. So there's point number one. Point number two, there was a huge amount of expertise lost. Uh, effectively from uh, 2010, if not from before 2010, let me be clear, and I'm using shorthand, and this is maybe not the most diplomat diplomatic way to put it, the, the boards were starved of oxygen uh, for a number of years. There, was, there were vacancy control policies in place, which meant they couldn't recruit people from outside the system, uh, they were being steadily run down, they'd lost a lot of ability, and to be perfectly honest, they were, in my opinion, they were a shadow of their former selves by the time the transition into the education body took place. Thank you very much. Thank okay. you, Chair. Thank you, uh, Mr. Hillage. Thanks, Chair. And uh, just going on some of your own points there in relation to uh, the report. Uh, could I say, Mr. Boyd, that I had put it to uh, Ms. Long that at the outset of my question on the last time, of, to the lay person, there would appear to have been uh, a degree of poor leadership and governance in place, a blame culture, a civil service culture of old days, uh, and a systematic failure to deal with change. And we all know how difficult that can be. What, what would your response to that be? Well, um, I actually. 
say, um, with all respect, I profoundly disagree. Uh, and the reason I disagree is because um, uh, most of my career has been spent in the management of change, and I know how difficult it is, and particularly difficult when you are dealing with cultures and organizations. And bear in mind, there were at least five cultures in the ELBs. There was no culture in the Education Authority. How could there be? It was a new organization. In terms of governance, the in, in legal terms, the Education Authority is actually the 20 members uh, of, the, of the board and the chair. They're, they're the authority, so everything comes from them. And when, we, when, when they met for the first time and over the first few months, we actually sat down with the members of the board and discussed with them how they would like the governance structures set up for the new authority. So the members decided that they wanted officials to report through a series of committees. That's what was done. And if you look at this, the particular committee that was in charge of this area, were very active. If they were very active, they did a lot of work. They had received a lot of proposals from officials. And if you look at the minutes of the committees, you will see that they regularly challenged officials and challenged the information uh, that was given to them. And if I could say one further point, uh, it's, uh, I mean, the, the, the constitution of the board was decided by the assembly. It is a board that is made up of all of the key interests in education. You know that it includes eight individual members, including three representatives nominated by your own party. It includes eight church representatives, and it includes other key interests. So there was a vast amount of experience, vast amount of expertise, and any review of the work of that committee will show that it worked very diligently. Thank you, Mr. Boyd. Uh, can I put it to you then that you, you claim it's a new organisation, but it's the same people that have been involved over many years or involved in that new organisation. So that culture would have come with uh, with those people. And don't get me wrong, I understand the difficulties in change within an organisation, difficulties addressing significant cultural change. But it does appear that there would at least be one outstanding uh, issue within that change, and it was communication. There was a clear issue on communication within the organisation. Can you tell me how that was addressed as Chief Executive? Um, yeah, and, and, and thank you for making the point again about culture and the difficulties. And in this context, and we're talking specifically about special educational needs, culture probably meant if I'd been sitting in OMA doing a job and doing it to the best of my ability, and believe me, I was doing it very well for 15 years or 20 years, I didn't want to change the way I was doing that. And you know that is writ large right across Northern Ireland. It is, um, it is absolutely the case. And indeed, it was, uh, uh, there was legal protections to make sure that employees retained their job. So there was no question of clearing all the decks uh, and starting again. And you wouldn't have wanted to do that anyway, because these are all good people doing their very best. Uh, and secondly, the risk to business continuity would have been just awful. It is not correct to say that it is all the same people, because the fact of the matter is, when we recruited the five directors who were to lead this organization, four out of the five came from outside education. Uh, uh, and that was a, a sad commentary in some ways on how far the education system had been run down. 
but it also introduced a lot of fresh blood and new thinking to the organization. And as the, the new structure has been populated at assistant director at a service level, we have seen new blood being introduced alongside very good people who have come up through the system. So I would be confident going forward that uh, we've got the right balance of expertise, fresh thinking, good experience going forward. But going back to a previous question, an awful lot of corporate memory was lost uh, over the previous four or five years. Well, I would tend to agree with you in relation to that, and particularly when you break the news to me that the four were from outside education. It even throws the sort of the, the present situation up that we have somebody from nursing actually in, in charge now, even though temporary from in Ms. Long's case. Uh, just moving to the the uh, the report itself, were there any other recommendations came as a surprise to you of the 2017 um, report? Um, I, I have to say that there were none of the recommendations came as a surprise, um, but the the um, but the the, the one. I, I, I'd have already alluded to this. The one that troubled me most uh, was the, the headline uh, about being able to demonstrate value for money. I've already explained that I, I find, I accept the challenge to me as an accounting officer, I accept the challenge of looking after public money, but, but to be perfectly honest with you, there are circumstances where, where I believe it's the right thing to do, the law tells me it's the right thing to do, to support a child, but to be perfectly honest with you, it's not going to be possible to value for money. And indeed, I'm, I'm even apologising for raising the issue. So, but I know that, that it, it put a real challenge to me and a real challenge to the members to be able to demonstrate that what we were doing was consistent, represented value for money. And bear in mind, the whole time we were being told that uh, special education needs in Northern Ireland were running at about twice the level that they were running across the water. So that was a big challenge for me. Okay. And without going back on, on Mr. Harvey's question, of the 10 recommendations, how many of those were actually ac actioned? Tell us. Well, I, I actually believe that the, 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 the department put in place a very good program board to ensure that all of the recommendations were taken forward. They didn't all apply to the education authority, but there were regular, I, I took great assurance from the work that the department was doing and the reports back that we were getting, the regular update reports, which were saying all of this work is progressing, all of this work is in hand. Okay. And just finally then, uh, on the situation specifically then of the appeal system and uh, why do you think there was a, an increase in appeals and, and, and why is this leaning in favour of, of the applicants uh, on seeing the increase of, to, well, sorry, there were some of them actually given up, some of the appeals were given up before they actually got the appeal system. There just seemed to be numbers given the indication that there was something not going correctly at the outset of anybody's application, that it meant so many people had the appeal and then of <coughs> course the the uh, authority then gave up or the department on the on the appeals and the applicant won and then there was a high percentage of wins that appeal as well so it makes you wonder why people had to go right through the system at times just to get that outcome 
any of those by, by complete chance, and it's not relevant to your question, but I heard a piece on the radio a couple of days ago where uh, in England they were saying that they were spending £90 million a year defending uh, tribunal appeals, most of which they lost. So it's, it's not a specific problem to Northern Ireland. My, my, my perspective on that is that the number of appeals, certainly in my time, uh, that I remember going to tribunal were no more than about 20 or 30 per annum in my time. Now, that's my memory. My memory might be defective. But in my, in my memory, tribunal cases were running at about 20 to 30 per annum, which is actually a very, very small proportion of the total number of statements being requested, which might have been about 3,000 or 3,500, uh, and a, actually still a small proportion of the number of statements which were refused, which might have been running at twelve or fifteen hundred a year. So, if you're turning down twelve or fifteen hundred people, and only twenty or thirty of them are going to a tribunal, then that you know that that feels to me like a relatively new number. Okay, we'll, we'll try and turn those actual, actual figures up, Mr. Boy. Thank you. I'm just. Uh, I hope my number's not defective on that. Sorry. I hope my memory is not defective. Oh, I, I wouldn't try to mislead you. No problem at all. And just as a, as a chief executive starting out on the road of the new authority and what, did did you seek uh, guidance or experience or information from any of the other jurisdictions uh, devolved situations within the United Kingdom uh, where maybe best practice would have been sought, or was it all just internal to Northern Ireland and we we, we went ahead with what we thought was best without looking for some external guidance? Well, um, no, I had. Uh, uh, let me let me take that in uh, in, in, in easy bits. Uh, I was recruited many years ago as the chief executive designate of the Education Skills Authority, which never never came into being. Uh, uh, so, but that provided a bit of an opportunity to look at how we might do things. Secondly, I was supported through this process as we as we transitioned into the Education Authority, supported by the SIB, who provided really good. Uh, uh, project management skills and really good access to other expertise, incredibly valuable. The sort of my my the last twenty five years of my career have been spent on managing transitions and organisations, managing mergers, that sort of thing. So know a reasonable amount about it, but actually most of the outside validation that we looked for was in terms of trying to understand whether we had the right sort of services doing the right sort of things. For example, uh, I knew that we had 130 or 140 education psychologists. I knew there was a problem getting access to psychologists, but I didn't know what the right number of psychologists for Northern Ireland was, so we looked elsewhere. We looked elsewhere to try and get uh, that information. Okay, thank you, Mr. Boyd. Okay, thank you, Mr. Borland. Thank you, Chair, and Gavin, you're very welcome. Thanks very much. Gavin, I just want to go back through some of the processes um, get a better understanding. I wasn't on any education committees, but I remember that I met you in the past and, and as one of the uh, chief executives, one of the boards. Say in terms of when when was it first muted the change of the transition from the ELBs over to the EA? When was that first muted? Not not the time frame for for legislation and all of that when it was signed. When was it first muted? The uh, the, the, the rationalisation of education administration was first mooted in 2005 as part of the review of public administration. Now, that was done by 
direct rule ministers at the time uh, with a plan to implement a new, a new education and skills authority, uh, I think in uh, 2008. Now, the, with the returning devolved administration, uh, uh, that date was put back to 2009. And then, although it was included in a number of programs for government, it was never implemented. In practice, sorry to interrupt you. The only reason I asked the question because I'm trying to get an idea. Because at some point the ALBs knew for definite there was going to be a transfer over, right? So uh, the the old boards operated in silos. There's no doubt about it. And and gathering some of the evidence and listening to the audit, reading the audit report, they definitely operated in silos. My point is. When you move from the five boards to the one board, what did you bring to the table in terms of a new system? Because you, you've said here you're waiting on governance, you talked about new technological solutions, and all of that, and that's part and parcel and process of any changes, to be honest with you, in modern day. Because I'm trying to find out what was brought to the table in terms of your understanding and trying to bring your expertise to the board in relation to saying itself. The, uh, just to go back over the timetable for a second, the political uh, consensus to create the education authority came about, to my knowledge, in about uh, summer 2014. Late summer, late summer 2014. Legislation passed through the Assembly in September 2014, thereabouts. So it was only at that point that it became absolutely clear that change was going to happen. And as I said right at the outset, the sensitivities, legal sensitivities were such that we weren't allowed, I was precluded from engaging with uh, the ELB until uh, the uh, consent had been achieved for the bill in the middle of December. My entire focus on the middle of December to the 1st of April was to get the 40-odd thousand staff transferred into the new authority because they had to have an employer to ensure that the authority could actually pay the wages, the bills, uh, and my uh, instructions permanent secretary uh, was, were to ensure that on day one, the electricity went on, ran, the meals were cooked and all the assets. So it was the, 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 the entire focus of business continuity. In other words, keep doing the things that are being done whilst we get the change lined up after that. Okay. Now, yeah. Okay, well, you said in, in the transfer, obviously, you faced enormous challenges. But on the other hand, you said that you were putting the children first. So, so my real question is, when you took over a new system startup, what was your priority? Well, the first priority was to ensure that uh, the existing uh, support for children, whether it be in the classroom, whether it be the bus services, whether it be the school meals, that they all happened. Because if we didn't put appropriate systems in place on day one, couldn't pay people, uh, all the rest of it. didn't have bank accounts in place, for example, all of that would have been just, would have fallen apart. So there was very much a risk-based approach saying, 
what is it that we can do on day one? What is it that we're going to have to take a bit of time about afterwards? Now, specifically in relation to children with special educational needs, what did we know? I've already said it. We knew that the same children or children presenting with the same issues uh, would get different levels of treatment wherever they, depending on where they lived. The first, one of the first things that the new committee put in place was a regional panel to ensure that there was consistency and approach to the statementing of children. And that regional panel went into place uh, uh, after the summer of 2015. So within a few months of the Education Authority coming into being, that regional panel was put in place to start working towards consistency for the support of those children. And, and tell me this then, you said then that there was problems dating back to 2008 and 9 in relation to statementing on two years. And 10 years later, after you left yourself, going by the report, 80% was still after 26 weeks. Clearly, that came in under new regulations and new legislation. So, from you, in your time in the transfer over, you said you lost, uh, or your expertise was lost from 2010. So, it, it the question I want to ask you is, had you the expertise to roll the programme out in 2015-2016 when you started? Well, uh, that's, that's not actually a question for me to answer, that's others to answer, but I had the job of rolling the program, of ensuring the programme was rolled out. But I, 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 I need to pick up, you've made a really important point, um, and, I, and I want to reiterate this. The, um, the Audit Office Report 2017 told us that a significant proportion of statements weren't being made within the 26-week period, right? I think that's terrible because it means that, that, that there have been delays in children getting the support that they need. But the Audit Office report also says that 80-odd percent of the reason for those delays was because of late reports coming from elsewhere, particularly the health sector. Now, the, the fact that it, it doesn't actually matter to the child, it doesn't matter to the parent responsible for the delay, they're still suffering the delay, and that's that we, we never should lose sight of that. But if you go back to the 2006 uh, 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 guidelines, they actually recognize that there are going to be delays for what they call valid reasons. Now, what that tells you is that although the legislation clearly states that statements should be delivered within 26 weeks, the guidance acknowledges that there will be a whole range of reasons that, uh, that, that can't, for that not happening. To be perfectly honest with you, some of this makes me feel it's a bit disingenuous to say that you're going to expect to get in that period of time. Just two final points, because I, I know others want to ask us. Um, in terms of the transition, has it hindered the role I was saying? Oh, 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 I'm absolutely, I'm absolutely clear. Has created the conditions where we will achieve a, 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 a much better, reasonably consistent system for children. However. I need to make what I, a point that I feel very, very strongly about. 
we have seen over the last number of years a considerable increase in the number of children presenting with special educational needs. Uh, we have seen difficulties emerging now. We simply didn't see 20 years ago. Things like behavioral problems, things like autism, where we've got a much better understanding. Uh, and thank God there are children surviving to school age now who simply wouldn't have survived 20 years ago. So there is huge pressure on the system. But this huge pressure on the system is happening at a time when resources have been reduced by uh, 10, 12% in real terms over the last uh, eight or nine years. There is an inevitable consequence of this, I'm sorry to say. If there are increased demands for services and less resources to meet them, the, services, the quality of service is going to diminish. And final point, before you left your tenure, um, you think there was still that silo mentality? I'll just start as a chance. Well, um, uh, what I can say to you is that um, uh, all of my experience in merging uh, businesses in the private sector and taking over business in the private sector and merging public sector authorities is that the best way to get rid of interfaces is just push organizations together. Interfaces are always difficult. The, the, you know, we, we've just spent a bit of time talking about the difficulties of the interface between health and education. My experience is it's always the other guy's fault. Health, uh, you know, education will say it's health that's holding us back. Uh, health will say education aren't giving us the information. Um, what I would say, very, uh, they, and, and I put a considerable amount of effort into bringing the new direct team of directors together every week, collectively, to sit down and discuss the issues. That's why we call them a corporate leadership team. That was done specifically to get away from a silo mentality, and I hope that work's still continuing. Okay, thank you, Mr. Beggs. Again, thanks for uh, appearing in front of us to give us your knowledge um, on what, what has gone wrong over, over the period. Um, I want to go over the waiting list for, for the, in terms of the statementing process to begin with. And one of the key bottlenecks has been the uh, <coughs> assessment by the educational psychologists. Um, uh, you've indicated there's a, there's a new system you have to uh, monitor the costs of special educational needs that you introduced early on. You felt that was important. So my question is, why uh, has there been no a standard method of recording centrally the number of pupils that schools wanted to refer to an educational psychologist. They were allocated a limited number of hours based on the size of the school, and they were only added to that list held centrally if, if there were hours available within the allocation to the school. So to a certain extent, you were going blind in terms of the demand that was there. So why did you not introduce a system to record that? Well, uh, first of all, um, a system was uh, brought into being which was capable of uh, gathering up all the data uh, um, and ensuring that it was then easy to get at the data to manage the challenges going through. I think the point that you make about uh, the potentially unmet uh, uh, need in schools is a really good point. And I don't have, uh, I'm sorry, I don't have an answer for that. I do not know 
why that was not considered. Although I do know that we had difficulty in gathering financial information from schools about precisely those sort of issues. So it's a very good point. I don't know what, why, I don't know why that wasn't done at the time. Uh, and I think the system would have been considerably better uh, had that been done. The other point that I would like to make is um, I was always very, very uncomfortable about models of allocating uh, um, psychologist time uh, to schools. And the reason is, no matter what way you do it, it's rationing. Yeah. You said you don't know why it was done. Did none of your senior management team or the board members ever think to ask or question? If you, if you, especially if you had the, the technical capability in your new system for doing it, why it wasn't done? Was, were you well, never challenged on it? Yeah, I can only say from my own perspective, I simply wouldn't have been into the detail of that. One would have been uh, that, that all of that process was being driven from within the Children and Young People's Services Directorate. Uh, and they were the people with the expertise. They were the people who were dealing with the issues. And I think it was entirely reasonable of the board to expect that the proposals coming forward would be leading edge proposals. Uh, I, 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 I acknowledge your point. I heard you make a similar point, I think, at the uh, previous evidence session. I think that was a failure. Okay. Then in terms of the growing costs of SEN, and when you began, it was around £200 million a year, so a very significant budget. And certainly during your tenure, there were very, very significant increases. Uh, I'm looking particularly at 2017-18. There was a very significant increase from the previous year then. So this ought to have been in your radar. So my question is, did you ever think to assess the effectiveness of the money that was being allocated, what you were getting for it? And, in, and if you've been listening earlier, my particular concern that's been reported to me has been multiple classroom assistants, particularly in post-primary schools, who were standing at the back of the classroom, not actually intervening unless perhaps there was a behaviour problem or something specific. So how effective do you think that money was, be, uh, was being used for? Uh, and did you ever think to do an assessment of what the outputs were? Um, um, very good points. The first thing that I need to say is just to remind us that once a statement goes into place, it is subject to an annual review. Uh, and the annual review uh, usually involves uh, principal of the school and the parents. It doesn't necessarily involve, or hasn't historically, in my time, necessarily involved somebody. Um, my memory is that about 80% uh, of statements every year remain the same, right? So I'm very disappointed if I hear stories where schools are saying too many classroom assistants there, we don't need them. Um, um, whenever the school is at a pivotal point in making a decision as to whether uh, that classroom that statement should continue to have that classroom assistant associated with that child. That's point number one. Point number two, I absolutely understand the difficult position that a school principal is put in if uh, they're with their uh, SENCO or with their, uh, 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 with their staff are sitting down with the parent and saying, uh, uh, Jane or John has made such good progress, we want to take away this 
level of support. That's a difficult conversation to have, um, particularly, and I've seen examples of real practice where classroom assistants have built up superb relationships with the children that they've been looking after. They're almost like part of the family. Uh, so uh, uh, the third point I want to make is the, the jury is out on the effectiveness of classroom assistance. The research is very varied. So yes, it is a big concern. And the fourth point is, you know what? Uh, for highly motivated parents, parents do, wanting to do the best for their children and their rights, that the achievement of a statement and the achievement of a classroom assistant is very often measure of tangible success that they've done their very best for their child. There's one further point which I think is really important. At this time, over the last number of years, school budgets have been squeezed to death. School budgets have been really squeezed. You know this, you'll have heard this, uh, those of you who are members of boards of governors, those of you who have got schools and communities, you will know that schools have been really, really squeezed. You will know that schools are supposed to uh, make provision for, for special educational needs up to the old stage three. As their budgets have been squeezed, they have been less and less and less able to make that provision. And therefore, they will always, there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's an incentive for them to try and garner as much additional resource from the centre as they can get. Just to be clear, it was not a school saying they didn't want a classroom assistant, nor was it the parent. The, the information coming to me was from a classroom assistant, a very experienced primary school classroom assistant, who loved her job, got great satisfaction, but was hugely frustrated and eventually resigned because they felt they were, being, they were not able to contribute at the secondary level school where they stood at the back of the classroom. So, so my question to you was, what assessment was made about the flexibility, about the output, is there a need to change how that resource that should be helping children in need is utilised in the school rather than simply following a child and get this situation where multiple classroom assistants are standing at the back of a classroom not doing anything? Uh, you're, you're absolutely right. And this was actually one of the issues that was highlighted in the 2017 Audit Office report that the system needed to be much more tuned into uh, uh, identifying the effectiveness of very large amounts of money that were being spent. Um, if you recall from that, uh, there, was, there were specific pieces of work for the department uh, uh, to engage with the ETI to try and monitor the effectiveness of this expenditure. The, the one thing that I took uh, great comfort and pride out of was the significant uh, improvement in educational outcomes for children with special educational need over a period of years. So we can demonstrate that um, uh, kids are doing better. We expect kids now with SEM to get five good GCSEs, but I think your, uh, your, your point is an excellent point. And it's, you know, we need to make sure that we're not trying to paint the wall, we're throwing buckets of paint at it. I think we can probably do better going forward. 
And was there ever any assessment in, in perhaps concentrating that resource in basic numeracy and literacy skills, literacy skills in either one-to-one -one or very small groups where the classroom systems could actually have a greater involvement with the child and, and provide more assistance? Was there ever any thought or assessment of that type of process? Well, I, I'm, I'm sorry to say you're getting into a level of detail that I don't really feel qualified uh, to uh, uh, comment on. But what I would say is there was a very clear understanding that there should be a limit to the number of adults that you have in a classroom. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Um, Mr Muir, joining us remotely. Thank you very much, Chair, and thank you to Mr. Boyd for um, joining us and um, out of retirement. It's, it is appreciated. Um, just a, two more strategic sort of questions. Um, obviously, you were appointed as the interim chief executive of the Education Authority and then took over um, as the chief executive when the Education Authority was established back in 2015, as I understand it. And um, but the, the level of change that's been was required to to meet the needs of uh, young people with special educational needs and wider related to the education authority seems to have been extremely slow, and it's been reflected in obviously the audit office reports in terms of the feelings for people with special educational needs. Why do you feel that that level of change has been so slow and been so ineffective during your time as chief executive? Well, first, first of all, can I say that uh, in my time as chief executive, running up to 2019, March 2019, I've said that the audit office report of 2017 effectively marked the start point for us because we were taking over a system that uh, uh, simply wasn't working as effectively as it needed to work. So 2017 was the start point. Audit office make really good quality recommendations a system is put in place uh, to implement those recommendations. And as far as I was concerned, and indeed as far as all of the report backs that I was getting and the board was getting, uh, the work was in hand to deliver those uh, uh, recommendations in a timely manner. So the Education Authority came into being in 2015. Why do we have a situation where 2015, 2016 and 2017 Essentially, there's been no progress in terms of the change required. It seems startling to me that we have a situation where the, the changes that are required to, to meet the needs of young people with special educational needs take so long to be affected. Well, uh, first of all, I, I have to disagree with your premise. I think progress was made. I've already explained that uh, year one of the Education Authority was a transitional year where the absolute focus was on business continuity and making sure that existing services continued. So we only started to implement change uh, from uh, April 2016. It was clear to me that we needed to create a single regional service to support children. Now, if you think through the logistics of that, that means you've got to design what that service looks like. It means you've got to identify the posts, the, the jobs in that service. It means that you've got to write the job descriptions. It means that you've got to work out what the salaries are for those posts. And it means you've got to go through recruitment processes. So I could bore you to death with this, but it actually takes a long time. 
certainly within the public sector to move the change process along because we follow proper processes, proper procedures, uh, and uh, uh, the fact of the matter is it takes time. Do you think that there should have been a greater allocation of resources and a greater focus upon the change management? If you look, for example, in relation to the police service in Northern Ireland and the change that occurred there, you know, it seems you know, we're obviously dealing with a situation now, and I accept you if you're, you're no longer chief executive. But there's still great needs to, to to transform the education authority. And you know, was there? Not, do you feel, in reflection, there should have been a greater focus upon managing the change? Well, um, first of all, I would say that the organization that isn't developing and changing is the organization that's dying. In other words, my experience of 30 years of running, running businesses, running organizations is there's a constant change, right? Secondly, we need a reality check here. There, was, um, there wasn't enough money to run the education system. There just wasn't. I spent the last two years of my tenure in the job telling anybody who cared to listen that we didn't have enough money to run the education sector. In those circumstances, I mean, the board made it clear, and I would have loved to have had two, three, four, five million pounds to run a change management program. But in the context that we were in, that meant that two, three, four, five million pounds going to have to come out with somewhere else in the budget. Um, there was no way that I was going to advocate taking that money away from schools. So would it be fair to say that the lack of financial resources from the Department of Education and um, higher up from the executive is one of the major contributing factors to the reports that we're considering today? Um, th that would be too easy uh, uh, a get out for me um, because there, I mean, my, my view of the 2017 report is that really it was just highlighting issues that have existed for years. Right, uh, and they needed to be dealt with. It is too easy to say money would have resolved the problem because there is a process issue here. The processes could and should have been better. But I do have a concern that even if the processes were super smooth, my own view is that the sector was under such financial strain that uh, uh, there would have been problems. And let me make a very simple point. If you've got an increasing demand for special education, and you've got the same amount of resource, you're going to end up going on year after year, you're going to end up with a problem. It's just like the emergency department in the hospital. If you get more people presenting at the front door and you've got the same number of nurses and doctors, you're going to have a queue. Just last question, Chair. Um, obviously, you're, you're retired from as Chief Executive, and I do appreciate you coming uh, to the Public Accounts Committee today. Do you have any regrets um, during your time as Chief Executive of the Education Authority? that you could have done more to address the needs of uh, young people with special educational needs? Uh, I, I said right at the very outset, I have direct personal experience of the frustrations that a parent can have, uh, but I've also uh, tremendously warm feelings for those who helped uh, 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 young people achieve. Um, uh, I, I, I wish we had been able to do more. There was, ne there was never a day that I regretted the fact that we couldn't have done more for children. I was full of admiration for uh, the work that I saw going on, particularly in our special schools, 
But let's be real about this. Our special schools are full to overflowing. We don't have enough space in special schools. Do I believe that's in the best interest of those children? No, I don't. Could we do more? Yes, we could. Thank you, Chair. Okay, thank you. Mr McHugh, who's also joining us remotely. Can you hear us okay? Yeah, I can hear you, Chair. Yeah. Uh, thank you. Thank you, uh, Mr Boyd. Um, many of the questions uh, probably that I have have been covered in so many ways as well, too. Uh, but I, I just noticed uh, a few just points uh, in terms of uh, the evidence that you have given. I'm glad that you said there that it wasn't a case of actually uh, more money because I know that, that was evidence that was given to the committee previously that were, uh, they felt that it was a case that uh, it wasn't money per se, but that maybe this was a, a reflection of the culture, but that uh, organisations within the whole system needed to be uh, improved. Um, I feel it, that that you probably have left it with uh, the the in terms of the library boards that it was a logistic failure or a logistics mission that was required there. Um, how accurate is that as an assessment uh, of what is that you've did to date? I, I I don't want to make it appear as if I'm being critical of really good people that I knew worked very hard in the education library boards, both staff and board members, right? Uh, because there were good people who were very committed. The failure that I could see, particularly in relation to special education needs, was the failure to implement systems, IT systems, that could have taken a lot of the burden of chasing people pieces of paper about the place. So time being wasted chasing pieces of paper. I remember, um, when I went down to act as chief executive of the Southern Board uh, 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 a number of years ago, it was a really good board, well-run board in many ways. A young man came to see me with a lever arch file full of proposals for new IT projects, none of which had been implemented. Uh, and they hadn't been implemented, not because they weren't good ideas, they hadn't been implemented because the board was running out of steam. It was losing good people. There was no appetite for change, no money for change. That young man has gone on to implement really excellent new IT solutions like the transport app in the education authority. So I don't want to blame people because that wouldn't be fair. But what I'm saying is it was like 10 years were simply lost when the world was moving forward and we could have taken so much strain off people if we put the right technology in to support them. Well, just in addition to that, uh, and given that there was such a long run, and, and I know because I was a member of Western Education and Library Board uh, at the time, uh, had one not uh, uh, a lot of the preparation in place for the amalgamation of the way whereby could respond very quickly to inadequacies within the system as it exists? Um, I, I'm afraid not, uh, because and for perfectly understandable reasons, the boards looked after their own interests in the way that they believed was appropriate. So there was very little traction around preparing for a single new regional authority. Uh, and, and that's not a criticism, it's just uh, an observation, an observable fact, that's what happened. Uh, in addition, uh, you alluded to um, the health services 
and the responsibility that they bore for the delays within the system. Uh, and is it not still the case uh, that health services are still there uh, as a, another partner within the whole system? And to what extent did you address that issue uh, as the chief executive at the time that you have taken up your post? One of, one of the actions uh, that came out of the audit office report, and indeed it was part of a, uh, 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 an improvement plan within the education authority, was to build new relationships with the health sector. Uh, and it is, uh, the fact of the matter is, in my time there, uh, new relationships were built up. In fact, I chaired some uh, uh, project boards which included representatives from the health sector who were really, really important. So, so there was tangible progress. Again, you'll see it in the, the records of the committees uh, within the Education Authority. There was real tangible progress made in relation to the health sector. However, you should bear in mind that uh, part of the feedback that the department got uh, in their proposals to reduce the length of time waiting for a statement uh, was they, they, they got a bit of pushback from the health sector who said, hold on, we don't think we can do some of this as quickly as you would like us to do. So that's what I said when I said earlier, you know, we have to be careful not to be disingenuous about this. We have to recognize that some of these take time. We should just recognize that. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Boyd, for your answers. Thank you. Mr. O'Toole. Thank you. Uh, thanks for giving evidence today. Um, earlier, in the, earlier in your evidence, Mr. Boyd, you said that, I think you said, but correct me if this is wrong, that it was your view that it was the primary responsibility of the Education Department to implement reforms following the 2017 report. Is that right? I didn't say it was their primary responsibility. What I said was they took the lead in doing it, uh, that they, uh, the permanent secretary set up a program board chaired by one of his deputy secretaries. And I actually, uh, they took responsibility. I actually th thought it was entirely appropriate because this is a major issue and fundamentally important to the department. What was, um, what was the education authority's role in that program board? Uh, there were at least one, I think a, a number of my colleagues uh, sat on the programme board. And that, progr that programme board continued to exist through until the end of your tenure? Um, I, 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 I believe it did. I would have to check that up. But my memory is that a number of the uh, uh, work streams were closing down towards the end of my tenure. Sorry, you believe some of the, some of the work streams in that implementation board were closing down towards the end of your tenure? tenure? Is that yes? Yes. So in other words, if my memory is correct, that would mean that they believed that they had uh, sufficiently well taken forward the work. Did you believe that? Well, that I I actually placed great reliance on the work that was being done by that board and the work that was being done internally. The, the two sets of reports were matching up. So it was your sense then, and this is not to, to be spiky, it's just to, to get a sense of where you thought things were, that the, the, the findings of 2017, and clearly you had lots of other things going on in terms of setting up a new organisation, and, and that's entirely understandable, but it was your view that as of sort of 2019, the 
led by the Education Department sufficient work or adequate work or whatever had been done to take forward the NIAO recommendations? Uh, it was my clear view that all of that work was in hand and there was significant progress made, for example, in putting in a new finance system and putting in uh, uh, a new records management system. Okay. Um, and just to go back to that, um, to the question of, we've been talking a fair bit about the creation of EA and the amalgamation of um, the previous boards. You said that the, when managing change, the best way to do it is sometimes to, um, the best way, as it were, to break down silos is simply to force the, break them down and force the organisations together. Um, but it sounds like that you weren't able to do that in its entirety, or that, or that, did, that work hadn't been completed by the time you were finished, by the time you retired. Right. It, it, takes, it takes years to create a culture. You, you simply, and, and, and you know, that, that started with the board setting out uh, uh, their key values. The board did a considerable piece of work setting out their values, which basically said, this is the way we want this organization to do its business. So whatever you did in the past, doesn't matter. This is the way we want this organization to do the business. Now, just sending out a piece of paper like that doesn't change the culture. I have a lot of experience of working in this management of change territory. And what I always say is people look at your lips, they, they listen to what you're saying, but actually they pay much more attention to your feet and your acting. So, and that just takes time. There's the reality, it takes time. And you also talked about the work that had been done in, um, um, uh, in basically uh, IT overhauling IT systems. Um, can you give a couple of examples of the specific um, uh, IT of the specific IT projects that were necessary? Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, I don't like to admit it in polite company, but I'm an accountant, uh, and therefore I pay particular attention to uh, financial systems. Um, for uh, on two occasions, uh, I was the acting chief executive of a board. And to be perfectly honest with you, I was startled by how poor the finance systems were. They did not compare favorably with what I had operated 15 years previously in the private sector. Yeah. Uh, now, yeah. that again is no condemnation of the people, it's just the way that it was. The systems were effectively used to tell us how much money we had spent at the end of the year, rather than what I would have liked to have seen as proper management accounting systems. That was a major priority. That, that was actually the biggest priority for the Education Authority, and a new finance system was introduced in 2016. So just over 15 months, 16 months after the authority was created. That was an enormous piece of work. And if you know anything about the successes of public sector IT projects, you know there are not that many of them about. So that was a huge success. I've made reference to the online application for transport, huge success. International prize winning uh, application, incidentally. Uh, I, I could make reference to the online application for school places. If I could take one minute of your time about this, uh, members will be familiar with the UCAS system of applying for university places. 
young people apply for places, they get their A-level results, and within a matter of hours, their five or six university choices have been uh, whittled through by the computer system, and they get their place at university. Historically, in the boards, it was a matter. It took a matter of up to four months to handle the transfer from primary to post-primary school as pieces of paper whizzed about the countryside. That's all changed. Huge IT project with enormous benefits. But one of the issues that I think has come up in the impact report and. NIAO people here can correct me if I've got this wrong, that still now, I think, and this isn't a, a, you know, about assigning blame, but still now there are legacy IT issues where one, le one legacy board, one geographic area is, for example, using Sage, another one is using Simple Excel. There are, it seems like there are still fairly big archaic uh, or fairly big clunky differences in IT between different geographies? Well, I, I don't know that. I, I don't know what the situation is today. But what I can confirm is where many different systems are, uh, they have to be replaced by new systems. That's in hand, I understand it. The Capital One system was introduced across the board, I believe, in about 2018. Uh, that would, uh, uh, somebody else could confirm that. But, but what that wants to do is sort out historic information, will give information going forward. Okay. And then final question, Chair, if I may. Just, um, you said earlier on, um, you said that you, you didn't, in a sense, like talking too much in accounting terms, though you're a trained accountant, clearly um, very able at it. Um, you didn't like talking too much in accounting terms about special educational needs, but, then, but you also... I guess in relation to the finding in the NIAO report, which caused some commentary that, that you know, that the, the cost of it wasn't viable going forward. But then you also said that there simply hadn't been enough money to pay for, um, uh, well, yeah, I guess the education system writ large, including special educational needs. I'm guess I'm asking you quite a broad question, but um, what's in broad terms, in your view, having uh, managed this system for several years, what's the what's the solution? Is it a, just a, simply a bigger education budget, or is it much better management of existing resources? Because if we are going to go forward and the jaws continue um, widening between resource and special education and special educational needs, there will have to be surely some kind of um, uh, reckoning or change, what, what do you think it should be? Uh, I, actually, I think it's both. I, I think it's incumbent on the new authority to continue to develop systems to operate in the most effective and efficient way possible. But the fact of the matter is, if more children are continuing to present with special educational this ultimately is going to take resources. Thank you. Thanks for that. Thank, thank you for your evidence. Thank, thank you. Uh, Ms. Flynn. Thank you. Um, thanks, Devin. Just maybe to come back to um, the last point that Mr. Muir had touched on around the Department of Education. Um, and in your opening remarks, you were talking about, and it's been referenced um, a few times since then, but obviously that some of the big core problems that you faced coming into 
um, into post and into the new education authority uh, model was the technical, uh, technological problems, the resource and finance issues, um, and some of those were worked through. Um, and in your own words, the, the boards that were the education authority was replacing were sort of run down and a shadow of, of their former selves. Um, and then on top of all that, obviously we know that in the context of the North Youth we're dealing with a much larger volume of um, children and young people that were requiring special educational needs support. So I'm just wondering, with all that in mind, as the Chief Executive, how often um, would you have uh, flagged up these concerns um, with the Department directly, so with the Minister obviously in 2016, and from 2017 onwards, it would have been the permanent secretary. I'm just wondering about the lines of communication between yourself as chief executive and with, with the minister and the, the permanent secretary. And maybe do you feel that um, your organisation received sufficient support from the department? Um, or you know, could, could there have been improvements that could have been made from, from that angle as well? I had excellent relationships with uh, uh, any of the ministers that I worked with, and all of the permanent secretaries and all of the senior officials in the Department of Education. There would not have been a day gone by that I didn't speak to either the permanent secretary or one of the deputy secretaries in the department. So there was a, a complete uh, free flow of information uh, as far as I was concerned between myself and departmental officials. Uh, and I have to pay tribute to the work that departmental officials did in fighting for additional resources for education and in particular for special educational needs. Um, um, they fully understood the budgetary pressures, uh, but they were, uh, on, on a number of occasions, they went into battle at monitoring rounds uh, towards the end of the year, and they did an enormous amount of work and were largely very successful in getting us additional resource. The downside of that was that if the resources coming in at the end of the year, particularly in special education needs, it probably has already been committed because the members of the authority were crystal clear that they did not want to deny resources to, to children with special education needs. So would I say the department could have done any more? I was very grateful for the support uh, uh, moral and financial uh, that I got in my time with department uh, ministers or where there were no ministers there, permanent secretary. Okay, thank you, Gavin. And then maybe just my second question. Um, I suppose it's on the same issue around the resourcing and, and the level of need. Um, but we do know that the, so the records of pupils who um, uh, wish to receive or apply to receive a statutory assessment, that those records are kept at school level. Um, so that means that obviously we don't have um, an overall picture um, of how many pupils have asked for these assessments um, and have not received them. Um, so I'm just wondering, do you think it's a good idea that the Education Authority um, would have access to that type of information? And then is that already sort of setting us back with the level of need if we don't even know how many assessments have been applied for and if kids haven't that assessment hasn't been carried out, um, you know, I suppose it could be putting us at a, a much worse situation than, than we're currently in. Yeah. It's, it's a really good question and I'm going to kick it to touch 
because I'm concerned there might be data protection issues or issues about protection of the personal details of children, that sort of thing. I just, I just don't know. If I can pick your question and go in a slightly different direction, I don't know either why the level of special education needs here is so much greater than it appears to be, for example, in England. Uh, and I, you know, I, I would like to, I personally would like to have a better understanding of that. So I, I think if you're pointing out that we don't have a full appreciation of the whole story, I have to agree with you. Thank you, Gavin. Um, can I just come back to a point uh, in very shortly, in a few minutes' time, we're going to hear from the, uh, the chair and one of the board members of the Education Authority Board. During your tenure until your retirement in March 2019, um, how much did the board know of the day-to-day the day, the day issues uh, within the um, Education Authority, but in particular around the day-to-day -day issues special educational needs and the challenges there? Yeah. Um, first of all, Chair, there was, a, uh, there was a subcommittee of the board, a very big subcommittee of the board, which oversaw this whole area. Uh, and I've taken the opportunity to reread the minutes of that subcommittee, uh, which met typically 10 times a year. And they, they went into a wide range of issues in a considerable amount of detail. And my memory of the, the meetings that I attended, I didn't attend them all, but my memory of those meetings and my reading of the minutes of those meetings would say that they were very diligent in challenging what was coming forward uh, and, and applying their own uh, experience and knowledge, because these are all very, very experienced people. I would have to say, that in relation specifically to the delays in statements being uh, issued consistently, the message that was uh, uh, given to the subcommittee and the board was that uh, virtually all or a substantial majority of any delays on the issue of statements was the fault of somebody else. Okay, let's call it health. The issue uh, was raised on a number of occasions, but the information coming forward was that delays were being caused that were outside the control of the Education Authority. The board was well informed, the members were well informed of uh, progress in dealing with the NIA report. The report was discussed at subcommittees, uh, the action plans were discussed, feedback was taken. A couple of other things I'd like to say, Chair. Uh, there were a number of issues around individual children, which were when, when uh, an issue was highlighted, either in the media or by a specific complaint, uh, where it was it came to the attention of members. And again, members were very proactive in investigating issues, challenging uh, um, what officials were telling them. Uh, trying to ensure that the very best was being done for children and uh, young people. Having said all of that, um, there was uh, concern that uh, this area of activity wasn't working as well as it might be working 
And I very clearly remember at my last board meeting, uh, the, the board agreed that my successor would carry out a review of the operations of the directorate. Okay. You, you, when you talk about a subcommittee, I, you, you kind of broke up. I didn't pick up. How many times a year did it meet, did you say? Subcommittee would typically meet 10 times a year. Okay. So the, the subcommittee then would meet 10 times a year, but it then fully informed the full board, did it? The, the, the minutes of the subcommittee would then be uh, uh, reported to the board and the board could have a full discussion uh, uh, about any of those issues. But also, Chair, it's important to make the point that any board member could attend any subcommittee meeting. So there were people who clearly identified that were members of that subcommittee, but every other board member was entitled to attend. So, so the, the board appoints subcommittees with people with specialisms or whatever, but any, all board members can be ex officio if they wanted to attend? Absolutely. Okay. Uh, Mr Hildage? Chair, sure, that was exactly where I was trying to go in relation to oh, what the sorry. board uh, knew. Or, or what the relationship was and how they interacted with the 2017 report. So, okay. I think the only thing is, the, on the appeals, Gavin, there was 145 in 2016. That has grown now to 408 currently. So, is that appeals to tribunals, Mr. Hillage, or is that is that through the dispute resolution process? Oh, I'm not sure of that. I accept the correction. I, I hope I didn't mislead you, but I'll go back and check the facts myself. Yeah, no. Thank you, Chairs. Okay. I think Mr. Borland. You yeah, thank you, Chair. Gavin, define your role. What exactly was your role? Define your role from a place in this whole, because that's a major transition. And from this is a huge transition. My role was accounting officer for uh, the Education Authority, so I was responsible for all of the expenditure, uh, all of the day-to-day -day activity of the uh, uh, organization. But in particular, uh, I saw my role as putting in place the structures uh, which would start to take the new organization forward. Because bear in mind, I initially thought that I was going to be there for at most two years. So what I expected to do was to get the new directors appointed, to maybe get their teams shaped up uh, uh, and then it will be passing on to a new chief executive. And, and you used, that's your contribution, so you used all your experience you had in, in formulating a, a way forward. What, what did you leave there so that people could then continue on? What did you hope? Well, what I, what I hope I left uh, was uh, a team of uh, a structure in place with five directorates, with a number of very competent people uh, heading them up with having worked through with the board, the governance structure. In fact, the board had to agree the structure was, it's the board who decides the structure, but I worked through with the board, what the structure was, what the structure of their governance was, because they're the people who are actually ultimately responsible in law. Incidentally, it's a small issue, but the statements have to be approved by the board members. It's only the board members who can make a statement. So, so what we did was we put the structures in place to support the board members to deliver their statutory duties. Uh, and uh, uh, what I hope is going to happen from this point forward is those structures will be used to develop uh, the new organization. But with a clear view in my mind, it's going to take another seven, eight, ten years. But you were tasked with that role, yeah? Yeah. And you believe there's a fit for purpose structure in place now? 
I actually do believe, uh, and, and part of my uh, self-justification, if you like, is the, the, the education authority uh, uh, has delivered savings. The last time I looked at the figures, there were about 80 million pounds a year. And it has done that by driving out uh, 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 additional administration costs and, and more efficiencies. That 80 million pounds has effectively gone to schools or gone to support children with special education needs. That simply couldn't have happened without the creation of the Education Authority. Okay, and final question, and I appreciate the Chair letting me in, because throughout all your conversation and responses, you talked about the lack of funding going in over a number of years. But that, mm. say, that says to me then that unfortunately at the bottom end of the pit was those people within SEN, those were the children who were losing out. Is that a fair assessment? Um, it, it's actually not a fair assessment, but it's my worry. I'll tell you why it's not a fair assessment. The area in which the Education Authority overspent every year was special educational needs, right? That was the, that was the one area where we clearly, consistently overspent. And that was because uh, the members took the view that they were going to do their very best for these children. However, I'd have to say that uh, although we always did our best, I have a real concern as to whether we could have done better. Okay. Um, okay, Mayor, that concludes the questioning that I've received from members in, in, in open session. Mr. Boyd, um, I want to thank you for your attendance this afternoon. Uh, apologies, much, apologies for interrupting your retirement, which I hope is going well. Uh, but I appreciate, I appreciate your cooperation. Um, members, we will now move into closed session. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber programme signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber programme signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber programme signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed.
This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound.
This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound.
This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound.
This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. Order. Okay. Agenda item seven then is a briefing from Sharon O'Connor, Chair of the Board of the Education Authority, and Dr. Andy McMoran, Board Member of the Education Authority, on the Northern Ireland Audit Office report into special educational needs. At this stage, I would invite uh, Ms. O'Connor, Chair of the Board, and Dr. McMoran, uh, who is a Board Member and a Committee Member of the CYPS, to join the meeting, both of them joining us remotely. Good afternoon. So, Connor and Mr. McMoran, can you hear us okay? Hello, Ms. O'Connor, Mr. McMoran, can you hear us okay? Okay, thank you. Uh, also in attendance uh, is um, Mr. Kieran Donnelly, the Controller and Auditor General of the Northern Ireland Audit Office, and Mr. Kyle Bingham, Assembly Support Officer, Mr. Stuart Stevenson, Treasury Officer of Accounts and Department of Finance will be joining the meeting remotely. Okay, 
broadcasting. We're uh, asking you now to uh, ensure that Mr O'Connor and Mr McMoran can both see and hear us okay. And if Mr Stevenson is with us, can you confirm that? <coughs> Mr Stevens, can you hear us okay? We, we can't hear you unless you're on mute. <coughs> Mr. Stevens, can you hear us? No, we can't hear you now. Can you hear us now? Good afternoon, Chair. Is that any better yeah, now? You're, 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 you're now being heard loud and clear. Thank you. Okay. Um, okay. So, okay, members. So, if you can refer to your papers, then in pages eighty-five to one hundred eighteen, in the previous evidence session, suggested there is a um, question you might want to go down. And at this stage, I would invite um, Miss O'Connor, Mr. Mc, Mr. McMoran, to join the meeting. And uh, Miss O'Connor, if you would like to make an opening statement. Uh, I will then open the meeting to questioning from members. Um, good afternoon. You're very welcome. And Thank you, Chair. Um, I, I would like to just make a few brief opening remarks because you've had a long afternoon and you don't want to listen to uh, a long speech at this point. Um, I'd just like to say um, that I'd thank the committee uh, for this opportunity to discuss the Human Rights Special Education. Neither um, myself or my fellow board member, Dr. Andrew McMoran, want to make, pick up your time unnecessarily. We like to start by saying we deeply regret that children and their families have been let down. And I would like to assure the committee at the outset that the board and myself are fully focused on the improvement program that is in place. Um, we welcome the NIO report. We also welcome the Children's Commission report and our own internal audit of practice. Disease reports have demonstrated there is an urgent need to improve the service, but significant progress has been made this year. Clearly, there's more to be done, but I believe we're moving in the right direction. Special education has always been to the fore uh, of the board's considerations, and we're glad to see the progress being made in what is a very highly complex area, particularly given the funding restraints or constraints, rather, and the changing policy environment. Um, Dr. McMoran is one of our educational uh, experts on our board, and many of you will know him. He's long-standing experience in education, and I'm uh, an ex-local government chief executive with 30 years of uh, non-executive experience. I'm also a chartered director, professionally qualified in, in governance, and I have a, I've adopted a practice of keeping myself very much up to speed with continuous professional development in the area of governance. So with that, Chair, I'll hand back to you. We're, we're very happy to be uh, here and to support you with your endeavours. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much. Um, can I just maybe kick off? Um, can I ask, we've, ju we've just been um, listening to um, your former Chief Executive, uh, Mr Boyd. Um, and can I just ask, in relation to the Northern Ireland Audit Office uh, report in 2017, what role did the Board play in the EA's response to that? Report. Well, immediately following the the, um, the NIO report, um, which I was pleased to see, um, I'm very keenly interested in these matters. Uh, in the immediate uh, aftermath of that, clearly the Department of Education established a program board, and our senior executive colleagues were represented on that board. So we followed closely the actions and progress that came through that vehicle. 
We also had um, a, a, an oversight of those matters through our committee, our Children and Young People Services Committee, and also through our ARAC committee. And as a consequence of the report, the, the, um, the 2017 report, uh, these matters were elevated within our risk register and were listed as the number three risk in the organisation generally. So we had two vehicles to uh, observe the progress being made um, as a consequence of the recommendations of that report. Do you think that the response was robust and effective enough from the board? Well, one of, um, one of the fundamentals, um, Chair of Governance, um, and it's a, a central plank of all the, the governance codes, whether it's the OECD code of governance or the combined code or any of the codes of practice that exist, um, the fundamental cornerstone of that is to ensure the board members should have access to accurate, relevant and timely information. So I think it's reasonable that board members were reliant on their executive um, colleagues to provide them with that accurate information. And certainly all the feedback that we got through those mechanisms was encouraging positive um, news. Well, does, that, does that mean that the board left it to the executive to respond um, and when, when the, uh, uh, the, the subcommittee, which Mr. Boyd made reference to, which met 10 times a year, and then would inform the board that the executive would inform the subcommittee, which in turn would inform the board, and then the board would decide whether or not they were happy enough with the, how the executive was handling it. Is that how it worked? I, I don't recognise what subcommittee we're talking about, Chair, but I can tell you as a result of 2017, we did a number of things. We set up our own transformation working group. We also uh, established um, the uh, engagement consultation pro pro program with stakeholders and parents and others in terms of having a direct feedback loop into the community, as it were. And we were in receipt of all of the plans that derived from that in terms of the transformation plans that came through our working party, uh, through the uh, work of the programme board in the Department of Education, the committee uh, viewed the progress through the reports that came via our director and took a view on the uh, information they were being provided with. In, in, in 2019, an audit, of, sorry, an audit of practice was commissioned within the EA following what were termed serious accusations about the SEN statutory service. This was conducted internally by EA staff. Um, could you expand on that and, and can you perhaps advise the committee what status does that report's findings have? Well, I was extremely happy uh, to see that internal audit initiated because um, I had been uh, talking to the board for some time and indeed to the department about the need for a review um, the issues that we're dealing with here, I have to say, are significant in terms of we had, of course, deficiencies in our own practice, and those have been set out and explored within um, the audit office report. But I was conscious, as were other board members, that through um, our own uh, connections in the community, that there were a lot of things that people were not happy about. Part of our response to that was to um, initiate this process of review. Um, Actually, at the time, uh, the chief executive and I, and this was our current chief executive, had slightly different views on this. I really wanted uh, a significant system-wide review 
very much like the Doran Review in Scotland, which was um, completed in 2012 and set in train a very significant range of improvements in the delivery of um, support needs to uh, children who had additional requirements. Uh, Sarah felt that we, in the aftermath of, of what were very serious concerns, that she really needed to get into the nuts and bolts of the operation, and um, we agreed to prioritise that internal review. The status of the internal review was that it provided uh, members with information that they were um, previously unaware of, and uh, the immediate consequences of that was that we took fairly robust action, and the board are currently still involved in managing the improvements um, that have been indicated in that report, and I believe those have been very uh, comprehensively detailed to the committee, uh, both the Education Committee and to yourself, Chair, in terms of EIC. So I, I won't rehearse those improvements, but they are in train. And indeed, um, I was very pleased to see that um, the Audit Office um, observed those improvement processes and commented positively on them. Okay. But in January of this year, then, um, consideration was given by the Chief Executive uh, around that report that we've just over the audit of practice report, and that has now led to uh, a further internal investigation with three board members and two people being brought in who are called or deemed independent experts. Um, I mean, given that there was an internal report last year, uh, which has led now to another internal report, does the board really think an internal report? Is the way to go forward? I think, I think, Chair, we have to separate out a couple of different strands here. Um, there was the board's responsibility uh, in terms of our uh, oversight of these matters. And although we've had the internal audit of practices, which Sarah obviously initiated internally, we also have reviewed our, our own uh, practice. We had a, a, an externally managed process around looking at our governance in terms of our, particularly with regard to our committee structure. Um, that was initiated by myself because I have taken the view, um, based on my experience, that it's a very large board and it is well known possible for members to be fully cited on all the work of the authority because of the span and range of the board. So we brought in a, an independent firm of consultants to look at our committee structure and members are still working through the recommendations of that. Additionally, the Chief Executive has actioned a review of governance in terms of the operational arrangements. So there is a separate independent review examining how the executive team support the board uh, with formal, uh, support the board with formal communications mechanisms and performance management systems to allow the board to be fully supported in terms of their oversight role. So there has been much more done than just the internal audit uh, of uh, practices. And I have to say that builds on a whole series of work that we've done over the last several years in terms of constantly reviewing our governance practices. Okay, Mr. Beggs. <coughs> In terms of uh, special educational needs, you've indicated you're unaware of some issues. Can you advise what performance information was presented to the board with regard to special educational needs? 
Well, we would get, in terms of our committee, we are provided with information about the numbers of um, children being statemented. We would have been provided with numbers around um, the increase in the numbers of children presenting for statements, and there's been something like a 30% increase in the life of the board in terms of children coming forward in the statementing process. We would have been provided with information around uh, the number of children who were subject to delays. And I don't want to get into the detail of that at this point, Mr. Beggs. It's covered in the, in the internal uh, audit, and um, I, I can add further detail at a later stage. But we were provided with headline information in terms of numbers. We were also provided with regular updates about the improvement projects that were ongoing, uh, a number of which that came out of the transformation uh, program, partly that we initiated ourselves and was latterly taken on by the department. And the information we were being, being provided with um, was lots of activity and lots of very positive developments uh, in terms of that work. Were you advised uh, about significant issues about the accuracy and reliability, about the uh, level of performance against the 26 weeks target, and the use of the terminology of valid exceptions? Were, were the board of, uh, uh, made aware of those specific issues? I'm going to have to choose my words carefully here, Mr. Beggs. Um, I think the direct answer is we were not fully aware of those matters. And did yourself or board members think to ask of any questions around these areas? Yes, and we were provided with appropriate assurances, uh, Mr. Beggs. Um, also, the information that came back from the programme board, which has been running since 2017, was one that, that uh, recorded uh, positive progress on, on, on all the matters that came out of the 2017 report. And, and so I think it was reasonable for board members to place uh, some confidence, draw some assurance from, from that information. And, 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 Mr. McMoran, did, did you indicate you wanted to speak there? Yes, it's, it's just coming down to the fact that when you look at the the, uh, the number of people on the board who are ex, ex principals, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, their knowledge of the whole process of the 26 weeks in the special education situation, it used to be called statemental, but now it's statutory assessment. They realise that. But, and I, it goes back to a further point that uh, has to do with when you're talking about the performance of the board and what they can and can't do, which I think is, is the underlying commenter again i'm just going to mention as i've done before something that arrived from the department of education when i was being trained and set up to be part of this board ea board members should maintain a focus on strategy performance and behavior and not be diverted by detail which is a responsibility of the chief executive and staff in cases where board members become involved in operational issues there's a significant risk that good governance Good management and clear accountability are likely to suffer. That hits the nail on the head of what happened. So, to whom are the board officers accountable to? You're asking me? Uh, both of you. Chief Executive. The executive team report. I'm getting serious. Back, Chair, sorry about this. The executive team report to the chief executive, 
and the chief executive reports to the board. So it is our job to hold the chief executive to account for the performance of the senior team. Now, that, what that means in practice is that every uh, director will respond to members uh, through the various committee structures and that arrangement was in place and worked um, pretty effectively uh, in terms of um, the members asking appropriate questions. Um, I have to say that the board members understand their role uh, based on the onboard training that was provided and the Northern Ireland Audit Office guidance uh, was supplied to all board members. We did refreshing refresher training uh, on a number of occasions. The board was established to remind members of their responsibilities. And I do believe that members did, to the best of their ability, scrutinise pretty effectively uh, the work of the relevant department. Um, and I, I can't go much further than that. Coming to one of the major concerns of principles, which is the delays uh, in statementing and the delays in particular of getting an assessment by an educational psychologist. Uh, each school has allocated a limited number of hours and uh, if, uh, an additional child uh, requires assessment or multiple children come along uh, and their hours aren't available, the, that information is recorded locally in the school but is not recorded centrally. So my question is, how can you know the level of demand that is there for services unless you know the number uh, of children who are awaiting educational psychology assessments and why was that? Not, why is that information still not uh, gathered centrally? Well, Mr. Briggs, I would say that there is a, a dearth of good um, data analysis in the whole system, not just in wait times for um, for uh, assessments. Um, but I would also say that we would have been aware of the the, the, the high level numbers. Uh, we wouldn't have had the operational information around uh, what wait times were in existence. Uh, we certainly asked questions about that, but I mean, the fact of the matter is we are operating in a very significantly financially constrained environment. And whilst we would like to have an open access policy in terms of every principal being able to access uh, assessment um, immediately um, or as quickly thereafter as can be organised, we simply do not have the resources to provide anything like uh, what would be required and, and, and should be required uh, because of the financial constraints. Um, that's just the, the long and short of it. There needs to be some sort of management of resource and unfortunately I've had principals tell me how unhappy they are with that, but I uh, have not been in a position to offer them uh, a solution to that. I don't know, Andy, if there's anything you want to add from the principal's perspective. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the process that you talked about in this statutory assessment is a very, very complicated one. And it's not just health. It's not just the fact that health is slow to react. There's much more to it than that. I'd spoken to uh, a, a statementing officer who, she's, who is retired. He or she left under the situation when uh, we were in a situation we wanted to put uh, the deficit in money, and we, we were very successful in that. Unfortunately, due to voluntary severance, etc., etc., the quality, the efficiency, and the expertise of the people who were dealing with all this had left 
and put stress and strain on the people that were there. The person he spoke to had left six months ago and still broke down in tears when she realised she was dealing with, at one stage in the past, up to a thousand cases. Now just let that sink in because when you're talking about the delay, 26 weeks is not a long time when you consider you're dealing with parents, teachers, you're dealing with education psychologists, you're dealing with the, the health service, you're dealing with ex experts in other fields to deal with that one situation. There are many more cases, for example, when you're talking about um, new, new kids coming in or when you're talking about um, kids who are necessarily under real pressure. That, the, the, the statementing process is very, very complex. And it, remember where it starts. It starts in the school situation. Now, in the past, we had, in special needs, you had a teacher who was teaching as normal and was given a couple of periods a week. That was an absolute disaster. And what happened then? We then had special needs department developing, and it's now become a much more uh, efficient and effective system. But what it does generate, as you, as you find out in the numbers, and for a principal, it can be very, very frustrating that there's more and more children are presenting themselves. And the statementing process, if you're dealing with the parents, remember the parent can ask questions and come back and revisit, et cetera, et cetera. That, and rightly so, but that only adds time to the statementing process, and that's what's happened. Then, then finally, can I, can I ask um, what role um, the board sees in determining the effectiveness of the use of special educational needs funding and whether or not there is any need for reform in how it is delivering the service to pupils in need. I think we've, we, one of the things that we did undertake in CYPS was around the restructuring of our um, educational psychology service, uh, which was principally intended to uh, grow our own in terms of um, the intake of, of um, educational psychologist professionals because um, we increasingly need more and more of them. That requires finance as well and in the, the straightened circumstances that we live, um, we can't have everything that we would like to run the service. Um, in terms of how we identify the actual educational impact, um, that's really more of a matter for the education and training inspectorate to actually measure what's happening uh, in the in the educational environment, as opposed to us, we would get the um, the general feedback in terms of performance. We receive reports from the education and training inspectorate, and we get information and data through our own officers in terms of how various parts of the system we're working. I personally have received criticism from a um, classroom assistant in post primary school who complained. Of multiple, and I've said this several times, but I'm asking you multiple uh, classroom assistants standing at the back of the classroom, not actually engaging, standing on standby in case they may be needed because of behavioural issues. So, my question is uh, do you consider that to be good use of the limited funds that is available to help children in need, and what else would you suggest doing? I'm going to respond briefly myself and then I'll bring my educational expert in. Um, I, I feel very strongly in this point. I'm a parent of a child with a severe learning disability. And one of the things I feel very strongly about is we should have a better system in terms of supporting children who have additional needs. 
And again, I would take you back to the point I made about the Scottish system, where the default position is mainstream, but they have all sorts of mechanisms to support children who have complex needs. One of the growing aspects of the children who are presenting in numbers now are the numbers of children who are presenting on the autistic spectrum. And those children are rightly uh, placed in, in mainstream, but that is a challenge for our traditional uh, mainstream environment. And Andy, I'm sure you'll want to comment on that. Yeah, Mr. Beggs, if you excuse me for getting a little bit emotional about this, but I'm going to ask, answer your question and the comment you've just made. What you've just said is 100% true. What the, uh, the person who was the uh, classroom assistant has said to you is 100% true. And it is an absolute and total disgrace. I was allowed to be given money by the old Belfast Education and Library Board to cut my cloth to suit my children. Now, they, when, when they're allocating classroom assistants, they allocate them per pupil. So to have that many people in the room, I'm sorry, it's just ineffective. And if we can just go back one more step, because I think to put my personal opinion on this, when you're talking about the amount of money that is in the Northern Ireland education system, I think there's enough. I do. I think also there are too many schools. We have schools that need to close, but to close schools, you have to take on the local population and they all vote. And that's a very, very difficult thing to do. We have too many schools in Northern Ireland, and therefore the money that we have is not being used effectively. Okay, thank you. Uh, at this stage, uh, can I just um, make our two guests aware that the reception here is very, very poor. Uh, I understand from one of the committee members that it was exactly the same this morning during the Health Committee. Uh, that's not doing justice to you and the evidence that we're hearing from you. So I'm going to with your permission and cooperation and understanding, going to adjourn the meeting for a short time to see if we can sort out the technical issues, if you don't mind. Is that okay? Yes. Thank you, yes. Okay. okay, members, we'll adjourn to try and address these technical issues. There's the Northern... Okay, order. Members, we're back in open session. My apologies um, for the difficulties of a technical nature um, beyond, I think, most of our control. Um, uh, Ms. O'Connor... Mr. McMoran, can you hear us okay? Okay, thank you. Okay. Um, Mr. Beggs had concluded his questioning, so I'll move on to Mr. Hilditch. Thanks, sir. Uh, good evening, Sharon and Andy. Good evening. Andy, I hope you haven't got all the end papers here to go through the whole night here. <laughs> uh, no, I was, I was just listening to your, your opening answers and statements, sir. Can I just clarify, Andy, there in relation to uh, what the role of the board is uh, on operational matters as such, because obviously a lot of the reporting stuff that came out in 2017 would maybe fall under operational matters. If you, I take it, as, as you're talking to me as a board member, uh, if you go right back to when we were trained and what we had to do, and how it's, it's developed over the years, and you're asked what our role is, uh, I'm going to describe it using an animal analogy. We're either a nodding dog or a scapegoat, and I think the scapegoat idea is why we're sitting in front of you now. That would be the role of the board, because to get operational, uh, and, and especially in the meetings, I know you talked about uh, it was a subcommittee, it wasn't, it was actually a director, the ch a director, it was the Children and Young People Services, and in that, you uh, have to be very careful, because, for example, at the end of every meeting, we get all the uh, statements to be ratified for that month, 
So that's got to be very, very confidential. And, and it is very, very important as well for the children and also the schools that are doing it. So to, to get operational there is a grey area. But that's up to the Department of Education to sort out. It was never, I mean, they came up with this structure. This was the structure of the board they wanted. And, and Sharon will tell you, it's a very, very diverse board. And what she's managed to do is knit it together when you think of the political reps and the other reps as well that are on. Yep, no, I appreciate that. Uh, so ju just on the, the educational authority, education authority's effectiveness, it, it, it clearly was a new, a new uh, body a few years ago. Uh, unfortunately, people have come to myself at various times over a period of time now and referred to probably poor leadership, poor governance, a, bl a blame culture, uh, traditional type, old style civil service, approach systematic failure to deal with change and we know a lot of people came from the five boards and into the one authority. Uh, Sharon, maybe from your point of view, did you, did you see any of that type of thing at all considering your experience in uh, local government and that in the past? Well, um, it's, it's a very interesting point and uh, I have a lot of experience in terms of dealing with change and it takes a long time for people to adjust to a new environment. You have lots of people who like the way things were before, uh, who are experiencing quite a lot of uh, change that they believe is uncomfortable. But I have to say, I'm recognising we had some very pernicious uh, cultural deficiencies, if I can put it that way, in terms of performance issues and um, how we engage with our stakeholders. But as a board, we've led a process where we put a lot of effort into staff development. We have a leadership program, which is about embedding uh, a new culture, a one region culture, which is around being open to our stakeholders, listening to our stakeholders. And I personally am very proud of the way the board has pulled together. And we now have a very improved relationship, particularly with school leaders. It didn't start off in a good place, I think, we were pitched into um, a financial crisis pretty much in year two, and schools were feeling the pain. They're still feeling the pain, but we've developed engagement directly with schools uh, where no one is particularly happy about the environment that we're living through in terms of the financial pressures. But there is a shared understanding that we're all trying to move in the right direction to the benefit of children and young people. And in terms of any individual member of staff who might have any issues, we do have very thorough uh, frameworks in terms of policies and procedures, including whistleblowing. And uh, if any member of staff felt uncomfortable or disadvantaged, there are very well-established processes to deal with that. And I'm unaware that we've got any serious issues in, in that regard. There was one word that comes out when you look at the board and, and it's, how diverse it is. It's the level of passion that's around that board. Now, in response to the audit and everything else that went on, we were feeling a sense of shame, a sense of anger, and a sense of frustration. We had no doubt about that, because this is special needs children who I, for 36 years, have been involved with in East Belfast. So it was not an easy thing to do, and to try and go from the whole operational side of it when you're trying to be strategic, became very, very difficult, and it definitely needs looked at. Okay, thank you. And just uh, looking at uh, some more specific in the report, the, the, the appeals and 
Obviously, those, those rose quite substantially. I think you'd indicated they went up by about a third, 30% maybe. Uh, but the actual then, sorry, the cases for statement, sorry, the, the appeals then rose somewhere in the region. It went from 145 to 408. That was probably about 125% of an increase. And was there something going wrong at that level that you could identify in relation to the statement and my by the authority uh, had to give and concede in some of those cases before they even got to the tribunals? I think, I think um, Mr Hildich, I think part of the problem here is that we don't really have the data. We, we're seeing this very dramatic rise in the number of children coming forward to be statemented. We don't know why that is. It's significantly higher than it is in other jurisdictions. Uh, so I think we have a deficiency in terms of at a regional level, in terms of our knowledge of what the need is, uh, why the demands are, are coming uh, to the extent that they are, and also about the geography of those, because clearly we have centres of population. We don't necessarily have all our educational resources in the right locations. So there are lots and lots of layers to this, which is why, coming back to my earlier point, um, we certainly need to look at our own operational delivery. There's no doubt about that. We recognise that we're doing that. This needs a system-wide examination. It's not just about uh, the procedures. There's a financial challenge. Our schools are challenged. We don't necessarily have uh, the resources in the right places. And fundamentally, it's very hard to plan for the future when you really don't have a properly informed analysis to work from. And as a region, I would suggest we currently do not have that. And finally, uh, we did ask the authority this question, and it seemed to be a no. But did, did the board look to any of the other jurisdictions, devolved situations in the UK, to learn from best practice there and get gain some experience of maybe something that had been working for for a longer period of time? Or yeah, yeah, we did indeed. Actually, um, I I work in Scotland, and in, in terms of uh, I'm involved in oversight and audit in local government in Scotland. And as you're aware, local government in Scotland delivers uh, educational services. Um, I think there are many things there that we could benefit from. I mentioned the Dorn re Review earlier, which was a platform from which lots of innovation emerged in Scotland. Uh, we're better than some places and worse than others. There's something very significant in terms of the increasing numbers of children that we have coming through, but we need to get um, that input. And I know that Sarah has already undertaken to work with um, uh, the Local Government Association in England to examine their practices. So I was bringing the, the Scottish experience and Sarah was inviting in expertise from England to see what we can learn from, from, from those experiences of delivery and that work is ongoing. And, and Mr Hildix, I think as well, we were trying to use the expertise that was on the board because there's quite a few ex-retired principals who were involved in this. And they started to realise, just to step back to what you'd said earlier, they started to realise that the reasons for this extended statutory assessment period was very vast due to the different reasons why kids need a statutory assessment. And when you look into the, the details, it just gets to a point, you think, is it any wonder? Because we, the number, that, when you look at the number of waiting, the weariness for the statement, it was a discreet. But what has happened now, Sarah and her team have grabbed this and 
thankfully, and this is going to sound ridiculous, but thankfully, due to the situation where they weren't allowed to have meetings, they had more time to deal with the actual state, and the statements have reduced because the, the people involved had more time to deal with them. If you have a thousand cases and you have to have a meeting and you're involving uh, medical, sp uh, speech and language, occupational therapy, physio, and in some cases, mental situations, you know, mental issues, it's, 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 it's a massive un undertaking. And it's something that I think we'll learn from. The fact that we did reduce, and it's looking quite good at the minute, the number that we reduced down to, okay? I can't answer your appeals thing. I can't because uh, I think the quote you got was 20, and now it's gone up to 400. So that's, uh, that's an amazement to me. Okay, thank you. Okay, Mr. Muir is joining us remotely. Thank you very much, Chair, and uh, uh, thank you for um, Andy and Sharon for coming along um, today, and hopefully we don't keep you too late into the evening. Um, just, just two things. Obviously, recognising the role of a board is to be strategic and not to be involved in operational matters. And one of the ways to try to safeguard against risk is to have internal audits um, to uh, and, and a, a board subcommittee, an audit subcommittee, to look at audit and to be able to do those necessary probes. Why don't you? Why do you feel that that internal audit element didn't pick up some of these systemic issues? Well, the first thing I would say, Mr. Muir, in response is I do believe we have a robust RAC committee. I'm pretty confident in the systems and processes that are in place there. And again, as Andy has said earlier, we have a very deep resource in terms of expertise on the board. Um, I think why some of these things weren't picked up on is, um, again, I made the point earlier about culture. You know, governance processes can manage uh, all of the systemic things in terms of process and paperwork, and you can look at those things. If there are cultural issues behind that that are not working to support the flow of information to the board, information being given to the board in the right format and the right way, um, there's very little your governance system can do about managing that. And I have to say, it's not to say that the board weren't aware of deficiencies there, um, but you need to ground your responses in some sort of evidence base. And thankfully, I have to say, the Audit Office report and the um, Children's Commissioner report and our own internal audit gave us the platform to identify what was wrong and then put in train a whole sense, a whole, a whole suite of interventions that we know are proving to, to produce benefits. Uh, and it will then be the job of the RAC committee and the uh, the members of the committee, um, Children and Young People's Committee, to manage that progress. But it wasn't that we weren't getting reports. We were getting reports. They, they, they were just... Um, not as uh, informative as they, they ought to have been. Yeah. Thank you, Chair. And I think some elements of this are perhaps for closed session. But the other element is just, obviously, there was a 2017 Northern Ireland Audit Office report that mm -hmm. uh, came through. And then, obviously, there's uh, the, the most recent report. So for, for an audit office um, to produce a report around an issue within an organisation is quite a significant thing to occur. Yeah. Um, so when a report like that arrives, you know, it's not it's not like not devaluing. It's not an internal audit report. It's quite a significant audit report uh, arriving, which would uh, garner public interest. And obviously, now the audit office have came back to that report and produced a, a second report, which we're dealing with today. 
And just whether you as a board are content that you have full oversight in terms of the implementation of those recommendations coming from the 2017 report, because that was quite a significant report that, that arrived, and whether you as a board are satisfied that you took full charge in, in terms of ensuring that that report was acted upon? Well, I, I, as I said earlier, there are two dimensions to that. We immediately took action. I mean, I have a list of, of um, a dozen interventions that the board undertook in terms of dealing with that. Uh, notable among, uh, among the actions that we took was around uh, reviewing our own practices in terms of community engagement and, and, and um, external feedback. Uh, we also set up a transformation working group. Uh, we were involved, obviously, with um, the programme board from the department. We received minutes from that um, programme board, and we took some assurance from that that, in terms of the terms of re reference for the um, programme board and the department, it really does concern um, action plans, making sure that action plans are delivered. So we were looking at it from that point of view, which seemed to be consistent with what we were being told within the departmental arrangements internally in EA. And on that basis, we felt that progress was being made. Um, and I, I don't know that there's anything else the board might have done that would have given us any further insight there. We believe that we were scrutinizing effectively and we traced, plus, we placed trust and confidence in the feedback that we were receiving. Andre, in a response to the audit office report, uh, Sarah and the senior, senior leadership team, obviously spoke, spoken to the board and I think described it in a very, very positive way. They saw it as a great challenge function, you know, to move on. And I felt that that was a very positive step. Thank you, Chair. I'll wait another wee question in closed session, if that's okay. So that's, that's fine. fine. Thank you. Okay, Mr. Harvey. Thank you very much, Chair. And this is Mr. McMore. Stage three backlog is due to rationing of the educational psychologists. Can there be a plan toward expansion of this via additional specialists? I'm sorry, I, I, the sound cut out at the beginning of your question there. Um, would you be able to repeat it for us? Stage three backlog, it's due to the rationing of educational psychologists. So I'm just wondering, can there be a plan toward expansion of this with um, additional specialists? Yes, I, I mentioned earlier that we have put in place a, a restructure of our educational psychology service. Uh, part of that was planning for the future in terms of making sure that we are growing our own talent in terms of educational psychologists. There was a complete remodel of that service, trying to free up frontline staff to be able to do the day-to-day -day, uh, backlog and, and manage that. And I believe that the committee has been in receipt of um, evidence that will point to improvements there. Um, and I would like to, to leave it there. But I do have to add that in light of the new legislation um, and the new ambitions in terms of turnaround times for statements and in light of our continued, continued uh, financial challenge, uh, I think we need to be realistic about what is achievable in the longer term. And uh, yes, if I could just comment. Um, we had a presentation by the new head of the Education Psychology Service, and I was very lucky because in her earlier years, she was my education psychologist for the school, and I had confidence in her. And when she was talking about the stage, now the, the stage three thing you can understand, up to stage three is dealt with by the school, 
Then when you, you need to look at that beyond into stage three, you then bring in the education psychologist. Uh, Mary made a great point as the new uh, head of the, uh, the department when she said the vast majority of time was being used up in the assessment process. That's what was eating up all the time. They're now getting to the stage where they've quickened it up, they've made it more efficient. And as you've just said, wouldn't, wouldn't it be great if we could get more education psychologists to come in and do that? Which I think she's working on the fact of what she has now and how she can make, not cuts, but how can she be more efficient and effective in that state? Because you're right, that's where the problem is. There is a backlog, and the, back, the backlog is brought about because schools are waiting on the assessment. Now, when the education psychologist comes in, it's not just a half an hour. It's not just then to make an assessment and walk out. It can take weeks, and remember, has to include the parents. And that's where it's a very long, drawn-out situation, along with, should I add, to help people as well. Thank you both very much. Thank you, Chair. Okay. Mr Boylan. Thank you, Chair, and you are very welcome. Thanks very much for your responses so far. Um, I mean, Sharon, just I want to tease out a wee bit because, I mean, um, in the previous session, I was just trying to get at the actual system and structures put in place because, I mean, that's key to how this is all rolled out. And, I mean, I understand the board has a certain role, but I'd just like to maybe respond in terms of your role and, and the overall structures to deliver and your responsibility, I mean, is it there? Because, I mean, um, I've seen in the past, and I appreciate all the answers and appreciate, but we're going on what's out of the audit report. But just your views in relation to that first, please. Well, I have to say, in, in the uh, in the development of the board, we have we have been very active in terms of trying to create this regional structure, which meant bringing together uh, lots of um people who um, had different practices of working, um, very different internal cultures. We put a lot of investment energy into trying to create those, those teams. We now have a regional and sub-regional structure, which is trying to work at, at a locality level, broken down into um, configurations of council areas. So we have more personal connection with those local uh, services. In terms of our own arrangements, uh, we have reviewed our governance um, consistently. The board every every year has looked at its own performance. We've made a number of changes in terms of our structures. Um, for us, what we have been uh, charging the executive team with doing was really around trying to formalise common structures across the region. Uh, we've also been encouraging not just the formality of that, and we have a whole raft of digital solutions that are that are radically improving our capacity in terms of the quality of information that flows to the board and out to our stakeholders. We've also looked at how we can change, change a culture as well. Um, we're trying to be an open and transparent organization. We're trying to engage with, with stakeholders in a way that provides them with good quality information. And we've charged our team with trying to put in place those solutions. And I could talk for days about the various layers of that. Um, Mr. Boyan, they're, they're, they're very considerable. This is a huge organization, as you'll appreciate. No, and uh, I, do, and I, do, I do appreciate, Sharon, and, and I want to just put that question before we because one asked about it in reference to the audit report. And, and Andy, I do share your frustration, because I, I, we all get the frustration in your voice and some of the answers, even to Mr. Beggs. Most of us are on boards of governors. I've been on for 13 years on the all-party group on autism, 
have a personal interest in it. We know how difficult the challenges are out there, and we're fighting for budgets all the time. But I, ju I just want to concentrate back on the report uh, itself, the audit report, because there is an issue, and it's been long established, this issue of silo mentality and working in silos. And I just, because it's referenced in the report, not only across directorates and individual services, your, your views in relation to the silo mentality and what you are doing to deal with it and how you are, are working to try and reduce or, or maybe you are saying there is not, but I mean, only going by what the report is. I, just before Sharon answers, I, I actually sat on the committee that appointed the chief executive, the new chief executive, Sarah Law, and in the middle of that, we talked in terms of the Department of Education, the Education Authority, the Education Authority Board, and then the schools, the, everything that goes with that. And those silos that you talked about was something she said she would target. And she's right, there were silos. She is targeting that with her senior leadership team. And it's not something that we talked about developing a culture. It's not something that's going to be done overnight. But she's making one hell of an effort with her senior team. And the good thing is, she's involved the board, the DA board, and kept us informed. And at the other end, She's involved in the Department of Education because we need to work closer to them because I don't want to be a scapegoat and I don't want to be a nodding dog. I want to be involved in a, 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 a where we're, we're working together, especially when it comes to special needs. John, do you like to comment? No. Uh, just to add, um, Chair, I, this is part of the challenge of putting um, this big regional organisation together. Uh, it continues to be a challenge. But I do believe now that we have we've we've pretty much a completely new senior management team, and they're exceptionally able people. Uh, and right down now to our assistant directors and heads of service, we have people who understand they are part of one organisation. Um, but Andy's right; um, we have to lead. It comes from the top, and I think Sarah is very committed and recognises. The, the, the substance of what you say in terms of, of silos. We, we fully appreciate that. It's not the work of days, it's the work of months and years to, to resolve that type of change process, but it is ongoing, and I would like you to be assured about that. It is ongoing. And, yeah, thank you very much for that. And Anya, I know you're saying there about there's a load of procedures and 26 weeks isn't long, and we need medical and health and all this here. But the sooner we join all that up, the better, because all of us want the best for each individual child, and that's what it's about. You know, but I, I cannot agree more, but you've got to understand, I worked in the system when it was 26 weeks. I was very lucky that my special needs department were very, very hardworking, and even that 26 weeks was a massive push. It, it, it's, it's the different people you deal with. They're not, they're not being... Uh, I'm not saying they're poor at their job. What I'm saying is if you're bringing into, whether it's a mixture of health or especially when it comes to mental problems as well, and when it comes to parents, and when it comes to teachers, and then when it comes to the special needs department. It's a, an awful lot of people, and especially education psychology. I just think that, I know we're looking at, I was told earlier today, we're looking at a 23 weeks or 22 weeks, as I remember, uh, and I was amazed, because I thought 26 weeks was done. Now, I'm going to then comment. When I then read the figure, as someone said, over 100 weeks, I was, I was, I thought it was a disgrace. Shameful. No, absolutely, and, that, and that's, what, that's why I want to bring the silo issue up. Just a, a couple of specific points. Uh, obviously, the issue of the recommendations we mentioned there was ten of them. 
in terms of your role, have, have you put in any monitoring processes in place for the recommendations you can help with in terms of that? Yes, there, there is a, 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 there's a subcommittee of the board um, to pick up on the earlier point that is overseeing the uh, outworkings of all of this process. Um, uh, we are also partly, part, we are, all, are also party to um, the department's committee in terms of working on the recommendations arising here. So at both ends of that relationship, we are working at both board level and uh, myself as chair, working uh, with the department, with my executive colleagues uh, on their oversight of these matters. And just finally, in terms of the, the gathering of data and the accuracy of data and all of that, and the IT system and all, I, I use, are you having any difficulty getting that data or can you comment on the actual data itself or the accuracy of it? It's radically improved. Yes, it's yeah, radically improved. Yeah, the right management right. information system has been a godsend for that. Could, could I just mention when you were talking there about, suppose you were in many ways you're talking about accountability. Um, there's a role here for the, the department when it comes to the inspectorate. I know the inspectorate have a problem at the minute that he, up until the, the union action was stopped, they couldn't get into schools. Well, they couldn't get into classrooms, but to get into the principal's office. And most of the time when the inspectors come into my office when I was a principal, we managed to get an awful lot done. And I think if you're, the, the role of the inspector could be very, very important here for the figures that you have just mentioned. So that's where this relationship with the Department of Education will develop. And it'll develop because Sir Alone's going to let it develop and we'll work, work, work hard with whoever the new permanent secretary is going to be. No, and I appreciate that, Andy, but we're just after listening to the presentation. I mean, we're back to 2014 here and the rollout of all these things. There could have been a lot more done to put proper structures in place. We are where we are now, but, but I, and just on the final point, we know the job teachers, our principals in particular, they're nearly accountants and bank managers now to run their budgets in schools. We understand the pressures that's there, but I, I appreciate the answers. Thank you very much. Sorry, one thing you mentioned budget, the one thing it got me were annual budgets. I, I couldn't cope with an annual budget because I was trying so hard to look to the future. Okay, there's no member has uh, signalled to ask any other question in open session. So if I'm, I take it we are then finished in open session. We'll then move into closed session. Is that okay, members? Yes? Great. Okay. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland 